I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept, I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days and Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong and joining me today are Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK and Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland. And in today's episode we'll be talking about Utah, the Beehive State named for the Ute people, a Native American tribe that has occupied the area for hundreds of years, Utah became the 45th state admitted to the U.S. on January 4th, 1896, after the territory was won in the Mexican-American War in 1848. With a total land area of 82,144 square miles, or around 212,000 kilometers, Utah is a shade larger than Uganda and just smaller than Romania. The state is bordered by Colorado to the east, Wyoming to the northeast, Idaho to the north, Arizona to the south, and Nevada to the west. It also touches on a corner of New Mexico in the southeast where the famous Four Corners Monument can be found. The state is currently home to around 3.2 million people, 62% of whom are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or LDS, known to most people as Mormons. The LDS Church migrated here in 1847, while it was still a Mexican territory, to escape persecution, but it soon became part of the United States. Utah has the second highest birth rate of any U.S. state and is the only state to have a majority of its population belonging to a single church. Okay, right at the top of this episode, I want to say thanks to Professor Greg Jackson, host of the History That Doesn't Suck podcast, for helping us out with this episode. Greg is a history professor and is also from Utah, and his show uh, chronicles the history of the U.S., uh, so if you're interested in that particular area of history, which we don't always cover, uh, I would highly recommend you check out his show. Uh, we'll be dropping in a few clips of the conversation that I had previously with Greg throughout this episode. So if you hear somebody that isn't the three of us, that'll be Greg. Uh, but if you're a patron of 80 Days at patreon.com forward slash 80 Days podcast, you can find our entire roughly 30 minute discussion that we had about the history of Utah on our Patreon page. Um for now, though, let's start out, as we usually do, with the things that we're looking forward to talking about this episode. Joe, how about you go first? Yeah, so Utah has kind of been a uh, a test case for a lot of things that make America, America. And while America was kind of disuniting itself and tearing itself apart in the Civil War, uh, Utah was actually a place that brought uh, that brought the growing America together in a very practical way. Okay. We're talking technology here. Uh, Mark, what about you? Um, I have some uh, Mormon poetry, which includes an attempt to rhyme the word throb. uh, An unsuccessful attempt, but uh, yeah. So uh, I I support it. (laughs) Okay. I was not expecting Sounds riveting. (laughs) Uh, I'm looking forward to talking about one of uh, the US's worst presidents and uh, a famous blunder that was named after him. So, yeah, we'll kick off with some early history. We're not going to modern day, are we? <laughs> uh, no, we're not. No. Sorry. It's, uh, historical. Historical stuff. 
so yeah, to kick off, the geography of the the region, uh, which now makes up the state of Utah, is mountainous, while the climate is very dry and semi-arid, with uh, desert in some areas. Utah is also home to uh, the famous Salt Lake, which is the largest saltwater lake in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and when it was discovered by mountain man Jim Bridger, it, he believed ah. that uh, he discovered the Pacific Ocean uh, <laughs> because oh, of how, how salty so this, this lake was. stupid Jim Bridger. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, I was going to say, we should probably mention at the top that uh, this episode will cross over a little bit with our episode previously that we did on Wyoming. I've been calling it Wyoming too, to be honest, because uh, there are some yeah. similarities. So if you haven't listened to Wyoming, maybe do first, because yes. uh, we have a lot of similar characters. You know, it's it's the next stop west on a lot of people's journeys. I'm basically refusing to repeat mm-hmm, anything I sure. did in my Wyoming section. So I basically said, just listen, I, I've done it. Just go back to Wyoming. Listen, listen to that. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely worth listening to. But since you're talking about the the geography, Luke, like scrolling through a a, a gallery of photos of natural beauty in Utah is just there's you know twelve thousand foot tall mountains, there's lakes, it is a crazy forests, crazy looking place, bonkers. yeah, deserts. There's just they got a bit of everything going on. Did I tell you I went to Utah? No. Yeah, br- briefly. Oh. Uh, I uh, my my mother and I. Uh, took a trip through like Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, oh. and also a little bit Utah. Uh, and we spent uh, basically a, a day driving through the Zion National Park. Cool. Uh, and it like it, we, we weren't, we, we didn't get to spend as much time there as we wanted to, but we saw like just mental just rock formations. Uh, and and also we, we got to see Monument Valley as well, which uh, mm. kind of bridges the gap between um, between Arizona and uh, and and Utah. Uh, and yeah, it's it's, it's really breathtaking stuff stuff that like yeah i i've never seen anything like it anywhere else nor will wow. you yeah exactly yeah True. so I, I, we, we probably can't do justice to that in an audio medium yeah exactly no it's really we'll, good we'll try to include some really uh, some images in the, in the show notes but yeah i think it is definitely worth google imaging so native americans are believed to have inhabited uh, this region anywhere from ten thousand to twelve thousand years ago the early mm-hmm. people here typically fished in the marshes and rivers of the region as well as hunting large game, including bison, mammoth, and our old friend, the uh, ground sloth, which, uh, you know, as, as we previously determined, sloth. is delicious. Yes. Uh, delicious and nutritious ground sloth. About 8,000 years ago, the onset of the so-called great drought uh, happened, and this altered the region's climate somewhat, making it drier and more arid, and uh, basically mm-hmm. killing off a lot of the large game and uh, making people there a little bit more reliant on a plant-based diet, hunting in marshes with nets and spears, this kind of thing. These people were known as the desert archaic people, and they traveled in nomadic bands, uh, hunting and gathering, as uh, most people, like most societies That's did at, at this time. Yep. Uh, around 5,000 years ago, as the cooler and wetter subboreal period began, the desert archaic people began to trend more towards organized village life and cultivating crops. The more Mm -hmm. favorable weather encouraged, again, big game uh, and more plant growth, enabling these societies to grow quickly. About three and a half thousand years ago, lake levels rose and the population of the desert archaic people appears to have dramatically decreased. Uh, This is where we see the appearance of two roughly contemporaneous but distinct different cultures, the ancestral Pueblan people and the Fremont culture. Uh, the former Pueblon people, they occupied the area around the Four Corners, uh, where the Four Corners Monument is today, while the latter were more typically found in the south of the modern-day state of Utah. Uh, Fremont people lived in pit houses dug into the ground uh, and covered with uh, sticks and, and brush, 
uh, and in natural rock shelters. They were mostly hunter-gatherers, again, who subsisted typically on corn, beans, and squash grown along uh, riverbeds. And the Pueblans Mm -hmm. were known for their pottery and for making use of the uh, mountainous land to build hard-to-reach shelters and granaries. Uh, There's a really interesting National Geographic article or an interview with uh, a guy who wrote a book about these uh, Pueblan people in which he describes like one of these granaries that they tried to reach to explore. And he was saying about how um, they were using modern uh, rappelling equipment and, and, and rock climbing equipment and still found it extremely difficult to reach these granaries that are set into cliff faces. That'll keep the mice out. Anyway. Yeah. And um, so he was saying, like, I, you know, I legitimately have no idea how ancient people were able to to reach these kind of places, given that, you know, us with our, our modern rock climbing techniques are, are having real trouble uh, reaching the same spots. So, you know, the, the, these Pueblan people were, were well known for um, being like cliff dwellers and, and making use of the mountains and the, and the cliffs in this, in this area. Do, do you know where this term uh, Puebloan comes from? Doesn't Pueblo mean town in Spanish? Exactly, yeah. So it was yeah. a name given to them by, the, by the, the Mexicans, I suppose, well, the Spanish settlers in the, the massive place that, you know, for, this was Mexico at some point mm. when Mexico was yes. about twice the size it is today. And yes. uh, yeah, the, the, these were the people who built Pueblos. They built villages, unlike mm. the more nomadic tribes. And so some of the villages, I suppose I might just mention it here, like some of the villages, there's remnants of them in and around the southern part of Utah, particularly a place called yeah. uh, Hovenweep National Monument, which is just worth, again, looking at pictures of. There's like these really well-formed square towers and houses that are lined up with the solstices and stuff that are they're ruined now but they were clearly significant buildings and that's not really what i have mentally associated with oh pre-columbian wow, yeah civilization in america they look um, like buildings and castles and stuff yeah like they they, mm. they could be straight out of central europe or, or africa or yeah absolutely else. and like i'm sure this kind of stuff existed all over america but there's very little evidence left of it and this is a cool example of that yeah looking into the 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 history of the the tribes in this area definitely it's uh one of the distinct things about the utah region is that like because it's it was up to so recently so sparsely populated that like a lot Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. uh these kind of settlements are are very well preserved and again talking about the the cliff uh settlements and that sort of thing they again they're you know very prominent um uh, and well preserved in the Utah region because the place even now is is relatively um, sparsely populated. So, well, like two thirds of it are federally owned land. Like it's just exactly, uh, yeah. But it just kind of paints a different picture of 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 Native American culture to hmm. you know the what Western what we'd be used to. Yeah, we'll and um, we'll drop some of those images in the show notes for you guys to take a look mm-hmm. at too. Um, so yeah, uh, these two groups that I mentioned previously were often referred to or are often referred to now by Native American groups as the Old Ones, which is a very cool name. Really um, cool. Yeah. Yep. Uh, both of these groups suffered from the changing climate as well as incursions from new groups that are in around the year 1200. Mm-hmm. Uh, and both are generally agreed to have migrated southwards. Around that same time, uh, Shoshonean-speaking people migrated to Utah from the west and from California. Uh, There are four main Shoshonean uh, people that inhabited Utah at around this time. The Shoshone themselves in the north and northeast, the Goshutes in the northwest, the Utes in the east, and the southern Paiutes in the southwest. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, Most Mm -hmm. of these groups lived in bands of around 20 to 100 people. And from what I can tell, there was relatively little conflict between them as they they had the kind of a shared language and and something of a shared culture. Um, Resources were ample. Why would they? Yeah. So I have a I have a quote here about like their lifestyles from UtahIndians.org. So to quote from there, the Shoshone people were very mobile and skilled at hunting and gathering. In early autumn, the northwestern Shoshones moved into the region near what is now Salmon, Idaho, to fish. After the fishing season was over, they moved into western Wyoming to hunt buffalo, elk, deer, moose, and antelope. They Mm -hmm. sun-dried the meat for winter and used the hides as clothing and shelter. In the spring and summer, the northwestern Shoshone traveled around southern Idaho and throughout Utah. In the late summer, they dug roots and hunted small game. Around late October, the band moved into western Utah and part of Nevada for the annual gathering of pinion nuts or pine nuts. Uh, Based on these migration patterns, experts have claimed that the Northwestern Shoshone were among the most ecologically efficient and well-adapted Indians of the American West. Hmm. So basically, that just gives you an idea of like how um, they moved through different territories and and subsisted on different different food sources, depending on uh, the climate and the weather that they encountered. And yeah, it's it's, uh, whatever was in season. Unfortunately, that's not a lifestyle that is, is allowed to people anymore. No, not anymore. Um, so at the time of European expansion, beginning, beginning with the Spanish explorers traveling north from Mexico, five distinct native oh, no. peoples occupied the territory within the Utah area, the Northern Shoshone, the Goshute, the Ute, the Paiute, and the Navajo. Uh, and just to put in here, the word Ute means, I've, I've seen different um, translations of this in different places, uh, uh, means either land of the sun or people of the mountains, which are two, <laughs> two totally different. Uh, Very different. Different interpretations, so I'm not sure which one of those is correct. In some places, that that the the Ute people themselves kind of say this was never a word we had. Um, right, this is just what the Spanish call us. So maybe so it just doesn't mean anything. Thanks for calling the state after our nickname. All right. So as with a lot of, of like native tribe names, they were sometimes just you. You were told by the United States yeah. that you're you're in this, this is tribe what your name. name is now. You're the people of the sun. Yeah. I, I get. Okay. Yes. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, it sound, doesn't sound like you're trying to offend me. So I guess yep. sure. Can I have my stuff back? Probably not. <laughs> that kind of brings us up to the 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 um the European arrival, uh, Spanish arrival of of explorers throughout this this region. So mm-hmm. um, yeah. Do you wanna do you wanna tell us a little bit about that, Joe? Of course, yes. So, uh, you know, this idyllic way of life um, was was not long to last because, uh, you know, people from Europe had gotten on some boats. Europeans effing it up. Uh, so, yeah, the first record I could find of any European explorers was 1540, when Francisco Vasquez de Coronado mm-hmm. might have passed through Utah. So he definitely was in, in the neighborhood. He was seeking uh, Thibola, I think it's called, which is kind of a, a rumored Golden City oh, type God. thing. Kind of an oh, who wasn't? <laughs> who wasn't? Who wasn't seeking uh, a, a, a city of gold at this so time? He'd heard rumors somewhere in the un, unexplored Great Plains or something, there was a city. He was of he course. and his, his army that he brought with him were um, fairly disappointed. Uh, but he encountered Apache, Navajo, Hopi, Zuni, and Rio Grande Pueblo Indians of today on that journey. So I suppose he, he probably, if anywhere, he visited the south of Utah. Then a bit more solid is that in 1776, there was the uh, Dominguez-Escalante expedition. So these were two Franciscan priests, um, Atanasio. Dominguez. Sorry, 1776. Yeah. 
So we're skipping 200 years there. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Good Lord. People were not interested in this area of the world. Well, there's mountains <laughs> and deserts. <laughs> like this, this Alta Mexico thing, you know, yeah. was never very explored by Europeans. They just kind of drawn a line on a map and said, we own, we own up to, up to Nebraska or up to uh, Oregon or whatever. I I remember reading this. There was the like the Spanish missions mm-hmm. were essentially kind of you know they were that they were like li- little embassies scattered throughout the whole yeah. California Alta California area. But I, I I haven't seen anything to to refer to their density in Alta California. I think there might have been a very very rare handful of their like them putting their their flags essentially in in, in the ground. But it, as as you say, there just was no actual evidence that the place was mexico uh if yeah. you were in fact there no and, and, and as you say that the the missions were were a big strategy and sort of you, you in trying to incorporate areas into mexico was to convert them and teach people farming and settle them down and kind of go you're now mexican settle down now actually actually settle down so anyway uh <laughs> Atanasio Dominguez and Silvestre Velez de Escalante. They were these two priests. And they wanted to find... Now, I've looked this up on Google Maps to see how mad it was. It was quite a mad. A golden city? No, th- no. they they wanted to find somewhere that was real. Just uh, they didn't have a way okay. to get there. <laughs> For a change. So they were based in Santa Fe in modern-day Mexico. Okay. And they had been tasked with finding an overland route to Monterey on the California coast. Okay. Uh, because, you know, these were two separate mission stations and currently there would be an access from Mexico proper by sea, you know, either direction. Okay. And they wanted to have a, a route. Um, so these guys set off uh, with the most prolific cartographer of New Spain, a guy called Bernardo de Miera y Pacheco. Um, they seemed to befriend various Ute people as they went, but were in constant fear of the Comanches. All right. Whose name, as we were saying, names aren't always names you give yourself. Their name apparently comes from the Ute word for enemy. So, <laughs> Jesus. So that's not kind of a silly people. Uh, they were yeah. Killy. Two of their guides were, were from the Timpanango Ute people. Um, and I think they picked them up in modern day Colorado and then they kind of were brought to where these guys were originally from, which was uh, what's now called Lake Utah. All right. So they gave them Christian names, obviously. So one of, one of the guides is called Sylvester, uh, Sylvester de Escalante, called this guide Sylvester as well, which is unhelpful. <laughs> and they had a, a guy called Joaquin with them as well. And so they, they brought... Um, they brought these these two priests to essentially what's modern day Provo, Utah. So their reports basically detailed the route and provided information about this this land. So, so they didn't end up going going all the way to um, California as they'd hoped because deserts and mountains got in the way. They kind of went back by a different route uh, through Arizona, and their maps were useful and formed part of what became the Old Spanish Trail. Our feedback is America is big. Too big to walk, arguably. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's a, people should have learned from that lesson. Yeah. So in 1824 and 25, we get into the kind of mountain man era. Sweet. Um, that, you know, 
see Wyoming for more details. Beaver fever. Uh, but a few of the mountain men, not many, but a few of them did explore into Utah as well. Now, the next thing I have, um, I don't know how much detail I want to go into on it. It's, it's the, the 1846 Donner Party, which was an mm. ill-fated uh, wagon party kind of trying to get to California. and Which we I, also can, touched can ask, on in Wyoming, correct? Yeah, mm-hmm. cause they, they came through. Can, can I ask, as the test... Where where did the Donner Party start eating each other? If they started eat, eating each other in, in Utah, then spoiler alert, to go into more so detail. I mean, yeah, I mean we 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 do have a mandatory cannibalism clause in our contract. Uh, so yeah. we're double dipping with the Donner Party because they were they were what kept what kept us uh, legit for uh, for Wyoming as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they started eating each other in California. But okay, they would have got to California on time if it wasn't for Utah. So. Our, our guest, Greg Jackson, has a whole episode on the Donner Party. So if you want the details, mm-hmm. go there. But yep. as it pertains to Utah, basically there was a a guy who wrote a travel guide, a guy called Lansford Hastings, for emigrants going to the West. And he kind of made yeah. up a shortcut called oh, Hastings Jesus. Cutoff. Which he, if <laughs> I remember he correctly, tried. he had never actually taken himself. No. Or, nice. you know, uh, yeah. He, he just reckoned... Yeah. If you left, if you left the trail at Fort Bridger, stopped off at Jim Bridger and bought some stuff off him, and then went south via the Salt Lake and across the the desert, mm. you'd uh, you'd save some time on your trip to California. And my understanding is that this, this, this book, uh, and this is going to become uh, important later as well. That the this is what was known as a Southern Route at the time, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and we'll be important again in my section later but um yeah is was believed for a long time to be the faster route to to california so basically if you're traveling late in the season this was believed to be maybe the more dangerous route but also the faster one so Mm. uh my understanding is the donner party took this as a bit of a gamble but thought okay well you know we'll be able to shave a couple of weeks off our journey Uh, they did not yeah they did not no, they did not. So there, there so. are 23 wagons and 87 people starting off, uh, including a lot of Irish people. There were Reeds and Breens and a Murphy mm. and a Dolan. All right. So uh, yep. the, the Reeds were one, the one family that made it intact and didn't eat anyone. So so they say. So they say. Yeah. But yeah, a few, a few Utah-specific things. Basically, East Canyon and Immigration Canyon, the Donner Party had to build roads through the forest. Like this was a, this Hastings cutoff was a brand new route. There was no way through. Wow! Uh, so they had to cut down trees and lay roads themselves as they went. That's uh, nuts. Which is, is one way to get through the Wasatch Mountains. Uh, when they got to the Great Salt, Salt Lake, uh, Patrick Breen, who was apparently very good at keeping a diary, uh, described it as, as it, it gave us great courage. Uh, he was wrong. He shouldn't have. <laughs> they were very late in the season and decided to press on to California. They'd been left a note by uh, by this Hastings guy who'd gone on ahead, the guy who'd gone on ahead, saying that they had about, you know, about 20 miles of desert to cross, be grand, two days, no bother. Yep. Uh, Don't worry about it. Think, it's fine. <laughs> I think they were like, it was six or eight days in the desert, basically losing all their cattle, fleeing, looking for water. Oh, jeez. Leaving the wagons behind. Um, and basically they end up rejoining the trail, having added about 125 miles to their, oh God, to their journey, bringing them well late into the season. 
everyone was in bad humour with each other. There were a few people murdered. There were a few people killed in fights. There were a few people wandered off the trail with someone and didn't come back. Uh, oh, Jesus. Yeah. And then they get stuck in the mountains and eat each other. Um, about half the party made it to California. Uh, but as I say, um, check out Greg's well-cited uh, and detailed version. But of, but you of, tell us what done it to him, I guess. By your yeah. Account. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, a Utah specific thing is that, that the eastern portion of the cutoff, like the bit before the desert, actually becomes an important part of, of what you're going to talk about, Mark, the kind of route that the next wave of uh, immigrants would use. Uh, but they weren't going to California. They were they were finding their location right here, their little Zion in the desert. Yeah, let's take a quick break here, and then we'll um, yeah we'll move on to the most uh, prominent inhabitants of uh, of Utah today, which would be the the Mormons. Uh, so we'll Spoiler. take a quick, quick break here, and then we'll be back in just just after this. you tell us uh how did the mormons end up here um well as as we were kind of discussing about about utah and its history we, we a few times flagged that it's essentially wyoming too i'm i'm very much gonna highlight that fact in that we we did talk about the route the mormons took uh to get away from everybody who had become very angry at them um through wyoming on to utah and we kind of gave some information there about the background of of, of the why of that uh, can I give like a two sentence what a Mormon is? Uh sure, yes. So, you know, rather you than me, I'm. Uh... There was there was there was a New England guy, a guy from New England called Joseph Smith. He claimed to have some visions where he met angels and received some new scripture. This is kind of in the milieu of there being revivalist uh, movements within Christianity it, in New England. A lot of stuff that, a lot of stuff like that going on at the time. Yeah, the end is nigh. The uh, these are the last days. We are the Latter Day Saints. You know that kind of stuff. Sure. And uh, founds this new religion and is run out of town repeatedly from various places. It's quite popular though. I mean, many, many tens of thousands of people are joining. Yep. And um, Smith is killed. Yep. In one of the places they try to settle down, obviously becomes a, a martyr. Um, also revealed he was practicing plural marriage, which wasn't Polygamy. known during his lifetime. Yes, and then Brigham Young takes up the the band of weary, weary religious refugees uh, as the leader of the biggest group. There were a few other splinters that went different directions. Yeah, but Brigham Young's Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, as they're officially called, or Mormons as they're known after the book Joseph Smith wrote or published, depending you want to listen to um he leads this westward migration out of indiana i want to say um yeah i, I, I think missouri i thought yeah missouri yeah missouri. i think you're right 
They might have yeah. gone through, through Indiana, yeah. but mm. I think Missouri. Anyway, he leads this westward migration, and they go through via Wyoming, and they're en route to somewhere. So the 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 you mentioned polygamy there. I, I think I think it's important to flag that because it, it's going to become relevant as we go on. It's a big political issue, not a big theological issue. I don't. Think. I should also mention, and uh, there's probably. You know, I assume we're going to get Mormons who are going to listen to this, and are probably not going to like the fact that I've I'm, I'm referencing this book. But uh, there's a really great book by one of my favorite writers, John Krakauer, who also wrote Into the Wild and um, one of the most famous books, uh, Into Thin Air, I think it's called, about the okay. Everest disaster in 1996. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah he wrote a book about <clears throat> Mormon fundamentalists who mm. still follow this uh, this doctrine of plural marriage, which spoiler right. alert, Mormons don't follow anymore. Um, for more than a century. Yep. Yeah, and he gives a, a kind of a, a pretty detailed history of of the the faith itself, um, framed around the, this kind of like uh, fundamentalist split. So yeah, he talks about exactly how um, how this uh, split happened, and uh, yeah, it's 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 a really interesting history of of kind of this tussle over polygamy within the within the church and exactly how it happened. And we're not going to get into no. the history of Mormonism here. Uh, that's not the purpose of this podcast. But for people who might be curious about um, the, the role that polygamy has played in the Mormon yeah. church, uh, that is definitely a book worth checking yeah, out. But I, I think it'd be, fair, it'd be fair to say that the, the issue of polygamy is more of an issue to enemies of Mormonism that, than that, it ever was it. really to Mormons. Like I I, I think most yeah. Mormons were never polygamists. That's that's the stick that they were most frequently beaten yeah. with in terms of their reputation. Obviously, you know, at the time people were a lot more into organized religion than they arguably mm -hmm. are now in many respects. Mm -hmm. uh, so the very fact of, you know, well you're saying stuff that isn't the stuff we say is itself problematic for yeah. a lot of people. But it was really But this was the easy the easy target. The, the polygamy kind yes. of feeds into the whole you're gonna take all our women, kind of, kind of idea, which really got, got, you know, uh, yeah. really lit the torches and started waggling the pitchforks around. That was the stuff that really kind of freaked people out, I think, and because you see it getting mentioned again and again and again, uh, as you say, despite the fact that it hasn't been a thing since the 1800s. So, just um, I, I read quite a bit from the memoirs of a guy called John R. Young, uh, who I found kind of quoted around that I found his original memoirs, uh, which is really interesting. And just in terms of the kind of the vibe that was uh, hanging over the, the the Mormons when they were kind of looking for a new home, it was uh, this quote from uh, from 1938 of a general who said, "You must no more organize with presidents and bishops. You must scatter out among the people. And if you ever get together again, I will be upon you, and I will not show the mercy that I've shown this time." So they were so very much aware of uh, you know we, we need to be away from from everyone else because because we are not being accepted uh, as well as the kind of violence that have been shown to to, to them in the long term uh as as they were kind of on this journey uh you mentioned about zion joe i i, mm -hmm. I just thought it was really i hadn't quite i guess grasped how much they were viewing themselves and the symbolism of you know, kind of christianity and so on in terms oh, the of mormon the, moses the, the chosen chosen people and mm -hmm. being being driven out a big dead salty lake uh, mm -hmm. that side of things is also oh, pretty so. symbolic. Uh, um, so yeah, they, they, they even mention kind of, uh, uh, stuff around kind of Daniel. And if, if you pray to the God of the Hebrews, we will cast you into the lion's den. And it's, they, they, it's really steeped in it. 
before I get into the kind of specific individuals, just a, a sort of a, an overall context that, as we mentioned, Utah is officially part of Alta California, and therefore mm-hmm. Mexico and previously Spain uh, assume it is part of their territory without any actual, you know, evidence of that or them kind of, you know, being there. In well, any those respect. priests went there once. Well, yeah, yeah, some priests went there once. But it reminds <laughs> me. It reminds me somewhat of when we talked about Alaska and the Russian. Uh, you know, the Russian, uh, quote unquote, ownership of Alaska before right. it was bought by America. And there was like 12 guys there being like, hey, this is, <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. this is technically our territory, but there's literally nobody here. So, uh, yeah, it's it seems somewhat like that where officially on, on some piece of paper somewhere it says this is Mexico, but there were really no no officials enforcing that at this time. So what's happening in the background is that America actually goes to war with Mexico. There's the Mexican-American War, which I like, you know, it's one of these wars that you hear about, I guess, through American media mm. and stuff. But it's not. It's one of these ones I don't I never really knew too much about it. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of kind of America taking big chunks of territory and, you know, Texas and places like that. That was previously in Mexico. But it got to the point that apparently America invaded Mexico City. I didn't. Oh, right. I didn't know that. Yeah, I thought it was like a border skirmish. Wow. But actually, they they invaded Mexico City, um, and that's why the terms of the treaty were so punitive to Mexico, and why, uh, you know, why, Utah why and so on, so much all, all entered uh, the American sphere of, of, of influence. Uh, it was the Treaty of uh, Guadalupe Hidalgo, uh, I, th- I think, in late the late forties. That's kind of happening in the background while. Uh, Brigham Young is is turning up finally after trekking through through um, various other states, finally arriving in in, in Utah to, to the Salt Lake. The, the group itself consisted of 143 men. Um, I'll mention this again, but three of them were, were black, in fact. Uh, um, mm. uh, and there was eight members of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles, which is, again, a, a for me, a Battlestar Galactica callback, but it's essentially kind of, you know, the, the higher... The we discussed that. Higher echelon. Battlestar Galactica was written by a woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Recycling C- jokes. Higher echelon uh, uh, leaders of the Mormon Church are the, the Quorum of Twelve Apostles. Uh, so they had several members of that group with them as well. Uh, they had 73 wagons, one cannon. Again, refer to that, that old general who said really scary stuff about them. Just in case. Yeah. 93 horses, 52 mules, 66 oxen, 19 cows, 17 dogs, and a couple of chickens. Um, and they were they were set up to stay there for, for up to a year. Um, it's also worth mentioning that on their route, they were planning always for the long term. They were establishing mm-hmm. towns as they went. So there was already, mm-hmm. as soon as they kind of got there, there was an infrastructure behind them for others to follow. Uh, which they did pretty much from year to year. There was an influx of several right. thousand people. And they had kind of had to rush ahead because the winter was coming in, wasn't it? So they kind of had to rush ahead and plant as many crops as they could for the people who were coming behind. Uh, I think they, they arrived in the summer, but okay. s- summer is not necessarily... Like for planting season, you want to be a bit earlier mm. than that. So I think in terms right. of the calendar, yes, they were rushing to put in, in crops. But I think that that was because just like it was already kind of growing season rather than planting season. Mm. Um so uh, pretty much as soon as they arrived, again, kind of reflecting this long-term perspective, they started spreading out uh, and setting up new settlements pretty much everywhere. And they set up approximately 90 settlements in the first 10 years of their, their being in Utah. Um, 
there was oh. there was two kinds of settlements that got set up. Ones that were either directed by the church uh, specifically in a kind of a formulaic fashion, or ones where you know some Yahoo or some particularly large family were like, "We fancy settling this land," and they were kind of went, "Yeah, sure, whatever." Uh, but the, the ones that were directed. They, they would set them up uh, with kind of community buildings at the center. Uh, there was a, a, a pattern of, of making the houses quite close together, which I think was was a bit of social engineering. I think that was part to, partly to, to make the communities feel closer together. Um, I think it also kind of helps to, 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 you know, check that people are adhering to the social mores that are, are required and so on as well. Uh, that, the, the, this, um, there this are many. A, a point yeah. to mention... Um, 99% Invisible, a very good kind of design podcast from Radiotopia. Oh, yeah? Has has an episode called The Plot of Zion. Okay. Which is well worth a listen. It's all about how, about the the, the street plan of, of Salt Lake City in particular, but also a lot of the other yeah. communities in Utah, is this kind of grid pattern, which right. is very, um, you know, it's not that atypical in America, but, but what is strange is that it was kind of inspired by a vision Smith had had, oh, uh, not okay. not a not a city planner by trade, and um, of how how God's city should be set out, and mm. the weird thing about it that apparently anyone who's been to Salt Lake City will attest to is that the blocks are gigantic. All right, so the city blocks are like six hundred and sixty feet per side, which sounds wow. like a okay. portentous number. It's like right. I think it's like nine nine Portland Oregon city blocks. You know, it's kind of. And like they'd have, they were meant to have farmland within them, and okay. all that kind of thing. Right. Um, and the result is, of course, that crossing an eight-lane street is quite dangerous. Good lord! And they put little bright orange flags and lampposts to help you wave them as you cross the street. <laughs> so, um, yeah, apparently there's about seven hundred towns based on a similar plan all over Utah. Some of the ones you're talking about, and obviously twentieth-century ones yeah. as well. And uh, it's a unique kind of Mormon legacy. Well, they were they were super the, the organized about their their settlements. They they would mm. they would essentially kind of look at the area, say, okay, what's the thing that we need in this area? Is it like a, yeah. a, a travel way station? Is it a mining town? Is it a farming town? Uh, and they kind of set up essentially like a you know a mission statement for the town. They would oh, form cool. a company. Uh, to kind of administer the creation of the town and they'd go in essentially like with you know civil engineering know-how and dig irrigation ditches because again this is this is deserty land so they need water mm-hmm. and so on and kind of uh, uh, taking um, navigations off rivers and so on and, and providing water for for, for crops uh, erecting fences and just kind of setting up uh, if you've ever played sim city kind of creating the the conditions in which people can then come in and build town sorry build a houses and uh uh commerce and so on kind of making the 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 land ready for settlement uh but yeah Mm. and and while they wouldn't be necessarily against the kind of ad hoc ones that were just happening from individual families by and large they they were kind of supportive of the idea because they're you know they want to settle the land but um in those cases they they would view it as kind of well it's not there's not a clear reason to put a town here so you know you can do it if you want we're just not going to direct our resources to it so they were very yeah. very targeted very focused in in uh, taming the land essentially but this that that also is a i mean that that is that also speaks to i think um you know a, a point where 
this is a very directed uh, group of people and a, a very yes. directed community, and they're 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 very like uh, from the books that I read at least, um, Mormonism teaches that one of the highest values in in Mormonism uh, is obedience, like you okay. know doing doing what you're told, and that's you know and, and what is directed by by the prophet and by God, and so you, I, I think it's important to know here that these people are um, are very structured very organized and are taking direction from the from the top down from the leadership of the church and that will become important later on when the u.s tries to impose itself into this community i think so that's mm. that's something to note here as well even down to the city blocks as you say doesn't the concept of theodemocracy come in here where they would like their political leader and that you know, their elected political leader was the president of the church yes i i think correct. so but i think also it's important to to consider again where they've come from. They've been run mm. out of the rest of America. They've found this place oh, yeah. in the desert, which is, you know, while it's not a land of milk and honey, they're, they're going to do the best they can with it. And there's a real kind of sink or swim vibe to it. And, you know, if we fail, okay, it doesn't matter that we founded those towns on the way and we founded these towns in this structured way. But if we succeed, you know, this is what will sustain us. So they're planning for the long term because failure is obliteration, essentially. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned that there was some some Mormon poetry. Uh, good old John Orr Young uh, throughout the book kind of uh, get, gets into waffly poetry mode. Uh, it's 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 not it's not great stuff. He's he's, he's no Wordsworth. But um, uh, the the forward to the book, I just wanted to give you a small section of that. Oh, may the thoughts in this book penned prove sweet and pure to kindred and friend. It's already kind Oof. of a bit waffly <laughs> to a child or grandchild, as the case may be. Loyal scions from the ancestral tree, whose pulse will quicken and brain will throb as they view the path the grandsire trod. Doesn't rhyme. Ooh. Does not rhyme. Ooh, that's, not, that's not great poetry at all. Uh, that's not how so rhyming John works. So Young's book is, is 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 pretty 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 interesting. He he flagged the thing that we mentioned in Wyoming, which is that one of the other non polygamist aspects of of, of Mormonism that. Uh, tended to freak out everyone else was that they actually had uh, quite good relations with uh, Native Americans by and large. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously exceptions to that, but compared to everybody else, they were less hostile to them. Uh, and this lent others to take the view that, well, they have some secret treaty. They're all, they're all in league against us kind of thing, uh, which didn't oh. really help tolerance of, of Mormons or Native Americans. Um, there is... So... Coming Do you up, want to talk about the race stuff as well? Um, um, yeah, that's that's why I'm pausing, Joe. That's okay. why I'm collecting my <laughs> thoughts to to decide how I how I phrase this. Um, so slavery. Um, mm. so I mentioned those 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 three three black people that were a part of the initial party, as I understand, and uh, I, you know, I might might be open to to uh. Some some discussion on this, but uh, as I understand, they they were slaves, um, and I think also that kind of sets the scene for what happens in Utah with regards slavery more generally, because slavery was practiced by the Native Americans in the area, was also practiced by the Mexicans, and the the Mormons were not necessarily super pro slavery, but I think that in many respects that. Their well, views they, on the issue hadn't had been drawn. Been anti-slavery, like Joseph Smith was an abolitionist. But yeah, yeah. I think Joseph like, Smith was an abolitionist, is my understanding, and then, and that was part of why he wasn't welcome in in the South. 
Yeah. Brigham Young, though, was was not an abolitionist and was, as yeah. I understand it, was uh, certainly not against slavery and um, has has certainly been described as uh, having uh, challenging racial views, shall we say, uh, or that that's certainly what we would describe them as, you know, might be what, we, what how we would describe them today. Uh, he was very reluctant. Like, I, I, I believe I Joseph I th- Smith um, did induct at least one black priest into yeah, uh, the, the Mormon church, but uh, that yeah, did, did not happen under Brigham Young. Okay, yeah, Brigham so, Young explicitly outlawed uh, yeah. black people being acceptable as priests. So that was a, it yes. was a, that was a policy change that he made. And um, I, th- I think an element of it may have been political calculus as well, that under, was it the... It was a complicated time. Was it Louisiana, the Mississippi Compromise? Uh, I don't think it was Mississippi. It was something else. It was 1850. Uh, compromise of 1850. That was it. Compromise that of any new states would have to be, you know, equal amounts, slave yeah. states and free states. And maybe Brigham Young was kind of doing the sums on that and hedging his bets. So I think that, that was to come, I think. So I'm going to mm. read a small passage from John R. Young's... Um, memoir and it it highlights this case which kind of starts to i think pull the new settlers into the issue of slavery in a way that they they maybe didn't necessarily want to originally or hadn't really considered might be a possibility um so i'm gonna i'm gonna skip some sections but um soon after we moved in onto our city lot fall of 1847 a band of indians camped near us early one morning we were excited hearing their shrill blood-curdling war whoop mingled with occasional sharp cries of pain it was Warship's band. Some of his braves had just returned from the warpath in a fight with Little Wolf's band. They had lost two men, but had succeeded in taking two girls prisoners. One of these they had killed and were torturing the other. To save her life, Charlie Decker bought her and took her to our house to be washed and clothed. Um, it goes into the details of, of what a bad state she was in. I'm going to skip that because it's, it's quite gruesome, uh, but very, very bad state, let's say. Um, after being washed and clothed, she was given to President Young and became as one of his family. They named her Sally and her memoir, her memory has been perpetuated by the courtship of Kanash, a pioneer Indian love story written by my gifted cousin, Susa Y. Gates. After she married Kanash, several years of her life passed pleasantly in the white man's house, which he had built for her. Then her Indian husband took to himself another wife, that's the polygamy issue, who became jealous of Sally and uh, ended up killing her. The, the new wife uh, was forced to, I believe, starve herself to death, um, uh, w- which is a common form of justice, uh, according to the, the, the memoir for Indians of the time. So wow. just to flag that a person was bought, uh, and as I understand it, they weren't necessarily freed, per se. They were raised as part of Brigham Young's family, but in an indentured relationship. So mm. it's 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 very muddied waters here. But I think this is the beginning of this as an example of how slavery becomes kind of permissible in this new society. Uh, according to a prophecy in the original Book of Mormon, uh, there's a reference to the Lamanites who are destined to become white and delightsome once they converted to Mormonism. So just to say that yeah. there's a sort of a, within the, the religious text, there's a rationale that one can go to uh, along these lines that essentially we're doing them a favor, we're bringing them into the religion, we're saving them, they'll be happier in the long term kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but uh, in 1852 they um the territory of utah passed the 1852 act in relation to service which essentially legalized slavery uh again with the baked in idea of sure wouldn't they be better off uh, as per the john or young story um there is this story here which again was was brought up by john or young in terms of um you know the situation they felt they were in uh they had outlawed slavery for mexicans so the mexicans weren't allowed to be in the slave trade people from mm. utah were so uh, the brother of a local utah chief was angered when they had essentially collapsed the slave market by saying the mexicans were not allowed to participate in it and he came to them with some slaves saying well okay great job buy my flipping slaves then if i can't sell these to anybody else i.e the mexicans then you have to buy them otherwise you're essentially stealing from me in his view um so hang on that the native americans were Slavery. Were slavers. Of course, yeah. There was slavery all over the place. Okay, that's, people, that's a new one people, to me. People do bad things. Um, sure. But sure. They, they, they had been trading slaves with the Mexicans, but the Mexicans had now been kind of pushed out of the market. Right. Um, so then, and this is according to the memoir, this is potentially apocryphal, he uh, dashed one of the child's heads on the floor, killing them, and then called all the uh, Mormons heartless for not caring enough to buy the child. So... This wow. was hmm. how they kind of perceived their position. Both, you know, there's a there's a, a religious rationale. There's also kind of a practical rationale because uh, they see how the people are getting treated. But for all of this, as I understand, they they, they were not above uh, using these people as as labor, which was very much required mm-hmm. at the time because they were living very difficult lives and trying to form a new society. So yeah, yeah. it's 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 a very very muddied water, I would say that. Uh, I am sure would provoke a lot of debate um, as, as I mean, the, the slavery part is, is obviously inexcusable. It, it's, it's the, it's not the normal form of slavery or what you might think of when you think of, of North American slavery. Well, there's no, yeah, there's no plantations or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so uh, just back to John or young, uh, he dates, he details a famine that they went through in these early years where crickets were devouring their crops. Oh yes, um, and I—I mm. I was surprised actually. The seagulls. Oh, oh, oh yeah. yes. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Delete that. But yeah, so, <laughs> but uh, so, no. It's, it's, he so he basically was was talking about these crickets that came in. I was surprised he didn't flag that that has potentially a biblical context since they're mm-hmm. the chosen people you know, in Zion, Dead kind of Sea, yeah. uh, that they're being afflicted with a plague. Uh, he didn't. He didn't seem to take up on that, but uh, that, that's that's perspective, I guess. Um, Anyway, things were really, really bad uh, until, as you say, uh, Joe, the horde of seagulls turned up in the middle of the desert. California seagulls and hung about for three weeks eating crickets left and right. Um, Which is pretty pretty miraculous, you gotta admit. Later on. It's pretty miraculous if it happens. Well, I don't know. I don't know much about the ecology of, of uh, Utah. Maybe it's normal. Apparently not. <laughs> Apparently it's not normal for thousands of seagulls to show up in the middle of the desert, uh, hundreds, potentially yeah. thousands of miles from the coast to eat eat crickets uh, and then leave. <laughs> uh, they were worried the seagulls were going to stay and destroy all their crops. And they were like, oh, no, they're literally just eating the crickets uh, and uh, and uh, leaving. Sweet. Um I might as well skip forward that in, in 1913, they established what is thought to be the first bird-based memorial to this event. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, uh, I think, like a, on top of the building, there's all these um, metal seagulls to commemorate it. And the seagull mm-hmm. is the state bird. The Golden seagulls, seagulls, I thought, yeah. 
Um, no, I, I I clicked through on that when I was looking at all the emblems. It's like yeah. California seagull is a weird choice. It's a really weird choice. And of course, there was a miraculous reason. Anyway, he 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 says this happened, and he goes on about how much he loves seagulls. So uh, <laughs> it, there's that. And I'll, I'm going to finish my John R. Young uh, memorial uh, with uh, he goes on a mission to the Sandwich Islands. Uh, which it gets it gets a bit dark and a bit bleak if he goes through California onto Hawaii and it is interesting mm. but uh, it does diverge from the history of and Utah. Mormons famously go on missions that's yeah, the thing that's... that to this day they do and and they they do that right from the start I mean he was one of you know one of the more original bands of settlers and, and he was already sent off to the you know Sandwich Islands yeah. which are potentially a, an, an ADA's topic um, but some of the chapter headings from that section are three days without food Saved by a donkey, lose my eyesight. <laughs> so, I, oh, yeah, no. just a flag. He had a pretty rough time. Um, wow! All right. So, back to back to Utah as a thing. Uh, after a few years of rapid settlement uh, and generally getting their stuff together, uh, the, the what I refer to as the Brigham Young Good Idea Factory uh, decided <laughs> they would become a state uh, between 1847 and 1848. Um, thousands of Mormons, about five thousand, had settled in Salt Lake Valley. They then sought formal recognition from the federal government in 1849, proposing to call themselves the State of Deseret, which comes from a, a, a word in the Book of Mormon, I understand, which means honeybee. Uh, so mm-hmm. basically, honeybee state for their industriousness and, and productivity and so on. Busy, and busy bees. crucially, Mark, their, their obedience as well. Um, the okay. Honeybee is, is, is very prominent in the, in the history of Utah and... Yeah, um, I believe that is one of the, yeah, as you say, industrious, hardworkingness, togetherness, and also obedience to... Single-minded. Uh, yes, uh, obedience to, to authority, which is, yeah. Um, and very sweet. And very sweet, indeed, yes. But with a sting in the tail, if you treat it right. <laughs> really, really interesting. For sure. But they, they've got a lot of metaphor. Isn't it, I don't want to preempt your flag talk, flag talk, Luke, but isn't it on the flag and it's state seal and stuff It like is that? indeed on the flag, yes. Yeah, the mm-hmm. the the hive is on the flag. Um, and yeah, the, the, the Deseret, that Deseret word, I believe, is used quite prominently. I think um, Deseret News, in maybe, newspapers. is, is, is yeah, the most yeah. prominent newspaper and... Yeah, so it's that was still kind of their designation of this yeah. place. It's their word for themselves, yeah. but Utah is obviously coming from the Ute uh, uh, um, Native Americans, and also just the fact apparently everyone just called it that. So like they were like, "We will be desert." Like, no, that's not what you're called. Like the place you're in is called Utah. We're going to still call it Utah. But the the, um, the state that they proposed in 1850 was massive. It's it's true, and and the the territory included, of Utah was 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 massive think, as well. Where did it include? It included like Nevada, most of Nevada. So it was, uh, it was New Colorado Mexico. And... Uh, sorry, the, the Compromise of 1850 established New Mexico and Utah's territories, but Utah uh, was, as you say, uh, was Utah. It was also Nevada, almost all of it. A major mm. part of Colorado, the west chunk, yeah. and a small yeah. part of Wyoming. Um, so their 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 attempt to get a state out of to turn that into their own state was rejected. Um, yeah. It's a bit ambitious. I'm not sure if it was the ambitiousness. Was... I think it was just they they I think there was other reasons. Probably around that they, they were still suspicious around Mormonism. Because the territory yeah. itself stayed that size for a while and it was it was only kind of in subsequent years got trimmed down as, as other states oh, got okay. formed and so on. So like the that, that yeah, so we, we parts of the land flashing, flashing back to Wyoming again, this was a, a territory just to just to make that clear, a territory rather than a, a state. So this was a forerunner of um the state of Utah. So 
yeah the 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 western uh part of the u.s was divided into these territories and i think territory of wyoming as well was was the one we talked about in that episode um so yeah just to just to make that differentiation clear that this this is the administrative district that we're talking about for now the territory of utah which encompasses encompasses several modern day states and this this is kind of drawing my section to a close but pretty much i think from year to year in summer and fall which was the season they would get about three thousand new people coming in so the population of this area just from people coming in was was rising really really quickly and people were spread out across a very organized structure so like you, you come in and then you're immediately potentially heading out to one of the settlements uh and and plying your trade farming the land and becoming you know busy be like economically active so uh, yeah i imagine they're 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 directing people based on their skill set and like what is needed in certain towns and that sort of thing yeah they're they're doing it a very organized way and and utah Mm. is 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 growing from from essentially nothing from you know essentially a patch of old dirt to to actually from essentially the the hunting and gathering grounds of a, a a large interconnected group of native americans yeah into an agrarian society with with roads uh, is another way of looking at it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. F- from their from their perspective, and and my you know jaundiced perspective as uh, as European person, we should also probably say that that again, uh, history does, that doesn't soak has a whole episode on the Mormon immigration. All right, uh, which goes into detail about like the handcart pioneers and these guys who came with, without horses and just like pushed all their stuff. Uh, again, see uh, Wyoming. Because uh, yeah. we, we talk about that quite a lot in there as well. But if you want more detail, it can be found. All right, so we'll we'll take a quick break here, and then we'll come back with the Utah War. Ye saints who dwell on Europe's shore, prepare yourselves for many more to leave behind your native land. For sure, God's judgments are at hand. You must cross the raging main before the promised land. Okay, so yeah, as you mentioned, Mark, um, the the Mormons have started setting up their their state of Deseret here. Um, you know, uh, worker honeybees all over the state and establishing different towns and settlements, and um, have been largely untroubled by U.S. government forces up until this point, and that was you know one of the chief reasons that Young. Uh, Brigham Young chose this this area. Um, however, shortly after the arrival end of the Mex- uh, Mexican American War, which you already touched on, shortly thereafter, Brigham Young was selected as the first governor of the territory. And at this point, relations between the uh, the Mormons and the U.S. government were relatively civil, but would not remain so. In the presidential election of 1856, the candidate of the newly formed Republican Party, John C. Fremont, promised to prohibit in the territories those twin relics of barbarism, polygamy, and slavery. So those those okay. were sort of you know highlights of the of the campaign uh, during this presidential election for Utah. I mean, good save. Yeah, cheers. Would go. Mark Boyle, noted polygamist. <laughs> uh, James Buchanan, who would go on to win the election for the Democrats, uh, was widely considered to be one of the worst presidents America's ever had. Um, and he was pro- <laughs> uh, pro-slavery, being from the Democratic Party. And after being elected, he figured that by going after the pro-slavery Mormons, he could score political points with abolitionists without actually having to tackle the wider issue of slavery. 
slavery it's itself. Like, I can be oh seen to be going after oh. people who are pro-slavery without actually tackling slavery at all. But only the, the weirdo religious minority ones. Not exactly. You didn't see any hypocrisy salary. in that? Uh, hmm. So federal appointees who were set in, sent into the territory uh, began to face more and more continuous uh, difficulties in establishing their authority, maintaining control over the workings of society there. And I know uh, Brigham Young attempted to kind of circumvent the judicial system by like uh, giving more power to local courts. Uh, so okay. rather than, you know, having uh, legal issues elevated into federal courts, he would just keep issues confined right. to, to the local courts, which he controlled. Keep it close to home. Yeah. Uh, during the 1850s, these conflicts between U.S. federal administrators and the Mormons became so regular that uh, I have a quote here from historian Norman F. Furness. Uh, he wrote that federal reports, quote, left unclear whether the Mormons habitually kicked their dogs. Otherwise, the calendar of their infamy in Utah was complete. So basically oh, saying uh, they're, they're devils in, in, in all but name, essentially. Uh, okay. The Mormons were equally displeased at the federal officials' behavior in the territory. They saw them as uh, kind of immoral and um, trying to us usurp the, the authority of the church. Probably drinking coffee and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and this sort of thing. Uh, Utah's state legislator sent a missive to new President James Buchanan shortly after his inauguration, telling him that they would ignore any and all federal statutes they deemed to be unjust and would expel any federal appointees who didn't meet their rigorous moral standards. Uh, and I have a report here on uh, from a New York Times article uh, from January 1858, uh, which quotes a counselor named Grant who says, yes, these are the men who threatened to send United States troops here. Damn the troops to hell and damn. We don't care a damn for them. They are, <laughs> if they're like the specimens we ha we've had here, the sooner we meet them, the better. Give me a bowie knife and a pistol and I will whip a regiment of the damn miserable scoundrels myself. Holy so, crap! Um, yeah. <laughs> so no, not, not, really, not really support the troops, damn the troops. Yes, yeah, and it's kind of funny because um, in this New York Times article, "damn" is 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 kind of like um, asterisked out, you know, in in the text. Yeah, it's censored. Uh, yeah. Is, yeah, it's censored is pretty funny. Um, I'm just looking at that that document there, Luke. He he threatened to pickle them in the Great Salt Lake. <laughs> yes, I like this guy. The previous paragraph. That's yeah. great. That's a, yeah, that's a line. Yeah. So uh, facing. Uh, Pretty enormous public pressure to do something about the the polygamous Mormons after his inauguration. Uh, James Buchanan decides to take action in summer of 1857. Uh, I've got a quote here from Smithsonian.com uh, from an article by a guy called David Roberts. Uh, he says, on July 24th, 1847, a, w a wagon rolled out of a canyon and gave Brigham Young, president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, his first glimpse of the Great Salt Lake Valley. That swath of wilderness would become the new Zion for the Mormons, a church of roughly 35,000 strong at the time. If the people of the United States will let us alone for 10 years, said Young, recalling that day, we will ask no odds of them. 10 years later to the day when the church's membership had grown to about 55,000, Young delivered alarming news. President James Buchanan had ordered federal troops to march on the Utah Territory. Hmm. So, yeah, uh, I believe Brigham Young did know a little bit in advance of this uh, move by uh, Buchanan, but he right. he held it off until uh, Pioneer Day, which is one of uh, one of uh, the Mormon festival days, and he delivered it ten right. years after they'd established themselves in Salt Lake City uh, for maximum political impact. 
So Buchanan decided to replace Brigham Young as governor and chose a guy called Alf- Alfred Cumming, a non-Morbin from Georgia as his replacement, but he didn't tell Brigham Jeez. Young this, although Brigham Young did eventually find out about it. Uh, he ordered well, Cummings... You, you would, I suppose. Yeah. When, when your email account doesn't work anymore. Yes. So he ordered Cumming along with a party of 2,500 soldiers to head for Salt Lake City. Uh, the troops were ordered not to attack, but to install the new governor, enforce the law, and defend themselves if they were fired upon. Uh, hearing the reports of Buchanan's intentions, Young began to prepare for the worst. So he uh, attempted to form a alliance with Native American tribes in the area, saying that the U.S. Army was a, a common enemy of them both, and un- unless they united against them, then they would both be destroyed. He recalled all missionaries from abroad. He began to stockpile food and arms. And he assured the Mormons that they would this time stand and fight rather than flee again away from uh, persecution. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much you know around the beliefs of Mormons regarding Native Americans. Not in great um, detail. It isn't, okay. isn't it? Aren't they meant to be from Israel or something? Is that not yes. a thing? Yeah, the, the reason that uh, Brigham Young was trying to... Um, trying to ally with the Native American tribes at the time was because, as as is written in the Book of Mormon, Native Americans are descended from a tribe of Israel, uh, which the Mormons are also related to, which migrated to North America. The The Native Americans are part of a tribe called the Lamanites. Is it, this is the belief in the Book of Mormon, and uh, the Mormons are descended from a, a, a tribe called the Nephites, I believe. Oh, I'm All right. Um and the Lamanites essentially were a wicked people who destroyed the Nephites, um, and hmm. and then they stayed in North America. Like they eliminated the the Nephites, and that the Nephites are the forerunners of the Mormons, essentially. So uh, God cursed the Lamanites with dark skin for having destroyed His chosen people. And then uh, several hundred years uh, later, uh, when Joseph Smith, uh, when the Book of Mormon was, was revealed to Joseph Smith, uh, the he was told that they, they were following the the practice of of the the Nephites. Uh, so this is why they be, they believe that um, they are somewhat distant kin to the uh, the Native Americans in in the region, and that was one of the one of the arguments that Joseph Smith or not Joseph Smith uh, Brigham Young laid down. Uh, in order for them to unite against uh, the federal troops during the Utah War, so okay, somewhat of a I don't feel uh, great a, about a, a lot of that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not really sure how to feel about it either. But there it is. That's that's laid out in the Book of Mormon. It, it it's it's an interesting book. It is. Uh, I think we can leave it at that. Yes. On 18th July 19. 19- uh, 18th of July 1857, a small advance party from the federal troops arrived in Salt Lake City, carrying a letter which informed Young of the imminent arrival of uh, U.S. troops. The letter did not mention that he'd been replaced Wait. as governor. Uh, which Tro- troops was... came holding a letter saying, troops are coming? <laughs> yes, more troops are coming. So as I understand it, this, okay. was, a, this was a group of maybe 25 Fair people enough. or so who were like, hey, there's uh, two and a half thousand of us who are heading this way. So... Maybe you guys should stand down. Uh, but because right. they didn't mention the fact that Young was going to be replaced as governor, which he already knew, uh, this in- only further kind of increased the tensions between the two sides because he, he he saw them as being um, duplicitous, I suppose. So mm-hmm. Young 
then proclaimed that he would do all he could to prevent the U.S. Army from entering the territory, but said he didn't want an all-out war. Uh, he declared martial law in effect across the territory in oh. uh, August 1857 right. and said, no person shall be allowed to pass or repass into, through, or from this territory without a permit from the proper officer. Amid this kind of atmosphere, the Mormon settlers began to be very suspicious of outsiders. Does this kind of remind you of th- those cases where, like, you know, guys hold themselves up in a cabin? You mean Waco? You know, believing the federal government's going to get them. And, You're talking about Waco. You know, it's kind of a state-sized yeah. version of, of a... Not David Koresh, not with the sort of the suicide cult thing. Just sort of a, you know... um these independent-minded survivalist dudes. Uh, anyway, sure. it's not important. Only this I mean, time, the, the, there are actual the, federal troops bearing down upon them, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they've been told that that is the case. And, um, and they're not uh, survivalists because they're, you know, they read one of those magazines that you see in the airport that's really scary in American airports, <laughs> which I read recently and it was really scary. Or they watch but, uh, they watch they're actual wars. survivalists who were trying to survive. Yeah. Yes. So it was during this uh, period of intense uh, instability, I suppose, and paranoia that the a wagon train known as the Baker-Francher wagon train or just Francher wagon train uh, bound for California passed through the Utah Territory just ahead of the military. Oh, no. And yeah, the cause of what happened next have never actually been fully established. Uh, as far as I can tell, there are a lot of different spec- um, reasons that are speculated upon. Uh, some historians argue that the party who hailed from Arkansas were um, somehow related to the murder of a prominent Mormon in that territory, which had happened a few weeks previous. Uh, mm. Others claim that the this people from this wagon train angered the Mormons by blaspheming and mocking their faith. And some mm. others say that they even uh, poisoned a spring uh, in retaliation for some kind of dispute between the Mormons and uh, this wagon train, or possibly the Indians in this wagon train. I've got a clip here from a history documentary called In Search of History, The Mormon Rebellion. Uh, so this clip just reenacts uh, first a quote from a Mormon called Thomas Waters Cropper about the wagon train, and then is followed by uh, a short clip of uh, author Will Bagley about uh, the causes of this um this incident, so I'm just going to insert that here. That summer, a beloved Mormon missionary named Parley P. Pratt had been murdered in Arkansas. Nearly everyone in the Fancher party hailed from that state. To make matters worse, the Fanchers were traveling with several hundred cattle they planned to sell to hungry California gold miners. The wild young cowboys who drove the herd may have harassed the Mormons. One Mormon settler, Thomas Waters Cropper, recalled their taunts. I heard one of them make the brag that he helped to mob and kill Joe Smith. And he further said, I would like to go back and take a pop at old Brig before I leave the territory. The insult that would have been most potent against the Mormons was we helped kill Joseph Smith. And if anyone in the train said that at any point in the journey, it was in many ways a death sentence. 
September 7th, the Baker Fancher wagon train was ambushed by Mormon militiamen who were dressed as Native Americans and also some Native American Paiutes with whom they had allied. After initial surprise attack, which the the attackers believed like the, the wagon train would very quickly capitulate, uh, but they did not. The pioneers circled their wagons, uh, dug, dug in and uh, began to fight back, which was the beginning of a five-day siege. It became very clear that uh, wagon train... The wagon train was more uh, determined than than the Mormons at first thought. And a farmer uh, by the name of John Doyle Lee, who was one of the leaders of the Mormon side of this engagement, decided after five days to enter their camp with a white flag. Uh, He assured them that the Indians were to blame for the attack and that the Mormons were here to safely escort them away. Then once they'd kind of got them out of uh, where they were sheltering, uh, they opened fire on all of them. Uh, killed all in all about 130 people Uh, and this incident is known as the mountain meadows massacre right speaking of this incident i asked professor greg jackson of the history that doesn't suck podcast our guest on the show today to give us an idea of what kind of influence the mountain meadows massacre has on utah today and how this historical incident is seen in a modern context it is um like brigham young still a very fought over aspect of uh, of American and Utah history, partly because, uh, you know, I, it's my experience that religious history is perhaps one of the most difficult things to get people to be objective on because yeah. mm-hmm. the feelings are just so fervent and strong, sure. um, you know, on, on all sides. So in my take, um, it, it's really a tragedy of, of several layers mm. going on. When you look at the Mountain Meadows Massacre completely in isolation, which is what Protestant America did in the 19th century, it just looks like Mormons are the monsters that they've been depicted as. For sure, yeah. What we need to remember is that Mormons have, by this point, been chased, I'd say pressured out of New York, have been chased out of Ohio, chased Mm -hmm. out of Illinois, chased out of Missouri. Yeah. Uh, They they are, and we remember this in in Utah, society and culture to this day we know that we're the descendants whether we're faithful or not in the church we know we're the descendants of religious refugees Mm -hmm. but when you've got the actual religious refugees i mean that some of the perpetrators of the mountain Meadows massacre are people who were were the ones chased out these aren't descendants with some sort of vaguer recollection these are these are people that were directly were impacted by those events yeah yeah Mm -hmm. they've been traumatized Mm -hmm. um so as this wagon train is coming through, uh, they have done nothing wrong. Uh, I'm sure, you know, no one's p- perfect. There, there are a few things we could point to and say, well, you know, maybe they should have you know, mind their P's and Q's a little bit more if they right. realized what hostile territory they were in. But good grief, I'm not going to hold that against them. Uh, but really, it's it's that trauma that has uh, the Mormons already in in a, you know, suffering from something of a, of a PTSD. Uh, then you've got this wagon train coming through Brigham Young to get to, you know, some of his involvement. He, he's talking very war rhetoric. Now, yeah. to what extent is he also a little, you know, mixed up in the head from what he's been through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's fought over very, very ardently uh, as to whether or not Brigham Young secretly ordered a hit more yes. or less. Yes. Uh, or did he just use really strong rhetoric and genuinely was uh, was upset when he heard that that this had happened? Yeah. That fight will never be settled. 
So yeah, the the Mormon forces known as the Nauvoo Legion uh, made contact with the U.S. Army proper in late September, and both sides were hoping to avoid bloodshed and violence, uh, and were told only to fire in self-defense. Uh, the Nauvoo Legion were hoping to hinder the progress of the U.S. Army, cause chaos uh, rather than engage troops directly. Um, I've got a quote here from uh, Daniel H. Wells, who was a lieutenant general of the Nauvoo Legion. He said, On ascertaining the locality or route of the troops, proceed at once to annoy them in every possible way. Use every exertion to stampede their animals and set fire to their trains. Burn the whole country before them and on their flanks. Keep them from sleeping by night surprises. Blockade the road by felling trees or destroying river fords where you can. Watch for opportunities to set fire to the grass on their windward so as, if possible, to envelop their trains. Leave no grass before them that can be burned. Uh, keep your men concealed as much as possible and guard against the surprise. That does sound really annoying. Yeah. So basically, they were they were able to hinder the U.S. Army um, so that they they ended up having to winter in what remained of Fort Bridger, which had been burned mm. by Mormon Mormon forces. Okay. So they just camped in the in the ruins of Fort Bridger. And then during that winter, the break in hostilities allowed room for some negotiation. A guy called Thomas L. Kane of Pennsylvania who was familiar to Young, offered to attempt peace talks. Uh, he then traveled via the Panama Canal to Utah, arriving in February 1858. Wow. Uh, and yeah, at, at this point, both sides, my impression is that both sides didn't want to kind of re-engage with one another. Uh, Kane, like the, the conflict was proving unpopular for uh, Buchanan, and obviously uh, Brigham Young didn't want to you know, didn't want to start a war, uh, which he knew he couldn't win. Yep. So Kane was eventually able to convince Young to back down, accept the new governor in, in exchange for pardons for all who had risen against the government. Cumming then moved into Salt, uh, into Salt Lake City shortly thereafter, and federal troops were allowed to enter Salt Lake City that June. Uh, Buchanan, nonetheless, was criticized for his handling of the incident, and June 19th, the New York Herald summarized the non-engagement as killed none, wounded none, fooled everybody. Uh, the okay. conflict also became known as Buchanan's blunder uh, in popular parlance of the day. Obviously, that doesn't count, you know, uh, the the mountain uh, the Mountain Meadows massacre, which we which I previously talked about, you know, the, but that was not a a military engagement. Um, so, so so the Utah War wasn't really a war then. It wasn't really a war. It's, so it's kind of interesting. It's it's one of the uh, yeah. It's it it's a nearly war. It's an almost war. Yeah, I don't I don't know why yeah, it's Cold called the Utah really? War. And I did see that on, upon re- reading about it. Yeah, I suppose so. I, I assumed it was a violent conflict. I, I just hadn't read into it. No, so nobody nobody directly was killed uh, in the Utah War at all. But as an indirect result, Republicans gained control of the House in 1858 and would later gain the presidency through a guy that some of you might have heard of called Abraham Lincoln. Honest Abe. In, yeah. Yeah. And in 1857, mm. just to round off this section, uh, just one of the perpetrators of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, the guy called Lee, who had held up the uh, the false white flag, was executed right. for his, his part in, the, in that uh, incident. But as far as I can tell... That, that does seem uh, fair. Yes. Like that's but really, as far as I can really tell, there were, I mean, there were many others involved. And as far as I could see, yeah, he was the only one that actually actually was executed for his part in the... In the the massacre so yeah we'll be back after this discussing the civil war uh our friend abraham lincoln and up to the end of the 20th century
Okay. Uh, Joe, do you want to tell us how the Civil War impacted Utah? Uh, yes. So you, you might have noticed this is a very 19th century heavy episode. Yep. Um, yes. Much like Wyoming. A lot happened in, in over a couple of decades and then things evened out. So, yeah, in 1861, the, the Civil War was beginning in America. The, the very integrity of the Union was at question. Um, and yet technology was trying to unite the USA at the same time. Uh, a great a great continental divide that was sort of a new challenge for the, for the US. Like California had just become the first western coast state and there were these territories linking them together. And getting news across the continent was becoming a hindrance to there being any kind of unity of purpose between the states. Like, it could take up to 100 days to get a message from Washington to California. Yeah, I mean, I think that guy that I mentioned in my section, uh, Kane, as I, as I said, traveled via the Panama Canal, which we've discussed before, was was the basically mm. the fastest way to get from the East Coast to the West Coast at yeah. this time. Or which the, po- is, the Pony Express crazy to think about now. did some business, too. The Pony Express, too, yeah, which uh, I should have mentioned was was established as a result of the Utah War, actually, because I believe um, the guys that founded the Pony Express, their previous business was um, like burnt the up Mule I think, Express? in the in the yeah. in the yeah in the Utah War. So they decided to start this as a, mm. as a new venture, um, as a as an indirect result of that war, or non-war, as it were. Right. Well, the the the, the thing I'm talking about will put them out of business within two days. Exactly. Yes. Uh, Basically, um, there's a company you might have heard of called Western Union. Oh, yeah. Uh, famous now for their, their money transfers. But they kind of had a, their name very much tells you what they did. They they were involved in connecting the Western bit of the Union to, to the USA right. via the first transcontinental telegraph. So, you know, telegraph is a big technology all over the East Coast. And all these cities were connected. There were telegrams being sent left, right and centre. And California had its own network, but there was no way to connect those two together. Right. And basically, the Mormons were incidental or, or, or instrumental in allowing that to happen. And um, basically, over over a summer, from July to October 1861, they put up thousands of poles, strung thousands of miles of, of wire, and uh, well, so they were polygamists thinking, after all. Hilarious, hilarious guys. Hilarious joke there. there. <laughs> <laughs> I like to review my own jokes after I make them, so people can understand. <laughs> so yeah, they were Salt Lake City was a connection point, and as a result, Brigham Young was allowed to send one of the first messages after President Lincoln had sent a, a message to California. Uh, Brigham Young sent the following telegram: "Dear Sir." I am very much obliged for your kindness manifested through you and Mr. Street in giving me privilege of first message to California. May success ever attend the enterprise. The success of Mr. Street in completing his end of the line under many unfavorable circumstances in so short a time is beyond our most sanguine anticipations. Join your wires at the Russian Empire and we will converse with Europe. So, that was his take. Not very nice. to the point, but... Uh, Pretty long telegram. Yeah, I assume he ended it with stop. Yeah. Um, so, Brigham Young became a bit obsessed with telegrams, or telegraphs, rather. Okay. Um, and although supplies were short during the war, uh, they did start building the Deseret Telegraph system. Of course. Linking all the settlements in Utah. So, he wanted to be able to get out his sermons and his ordinances 
uh, ASAP. And uh, it wasn't finished till 1866, and it became an example of work entrusted to women, which I thought was interesting. So we've got a, a few quotes here from uh, The Telegraph Comes to Utah from Beehive History. One comment was, uh, four young women of Nephi took up the job with enthusiasm. Elizabeth Claridge, Belle Parks, Hetty Grace and Mary Ellen Love. As Mary Ellen recalled, we girls had a happy, busy time that summer and enjoyed our study and practice of telegraphy. In the fall, we were assigned to take charge of different offices. We kept in touch with each other by making use of the privilege of chatting over the line after business hours. And they could basically run a telegraph station from their home. And so it didn't interfere with the, you know, the housework and so on. Wow. Uh, very practical. And then uh, William Bryan, who ended up being Brigham Young's personal telegrapher. He would like be on the road with them. And apparently you could just cut into the line anywhere you wanted. So uh, he said of, of, of Young, The president always wanted the news of the day, every day. While on the road from place to place, his secretary in Salt Lake City would read and compile the news from the papers and such local news as might be desirable for the president. And when I would cut in my telegraph apparatus and give my signal to Salt Lake, my pen would be sweeping over the paper like magic, copying the news. Often the president stopped at places where there was no telegraph office. At such places, I would cut the wires and establish my office anywhere. Anywhere was once upon top of a woodpile in a Scipio in a snowstorm. Okay. Wow. So that's awesome. Quite um, cutting edge stuff there. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so the Civil War had some more widespread effects, though, of course, it was happening very far away. Um, federal troops were pulled out of Utah to fight uh, against the Confederates. And there was a bit of a there was a bit of a gap in service where until um, a regiment of California volunteers were sent in to keep an eye on the pesky Mormons. So basically, Lincoln didn't trust the Mormons to be loyal to the Union, so he wasn't happy to put them into battle. Right. And he also didn't want to leave them unwatched. Okay. And the guy who was given the task of um, having, a, a, having a, a watch over them was Colonel Patrick E. Connor, who was born on St. Patrick's Day, 1820, in County Kerry. Okay. In Ireland. So... Uh, you know, could be could be a cousin of yours, Mark. Maybe. Uh, sure, potentially. So, do you want to do you want to take his side and be a fan of his? Uh, uh no, I don't, because oh. I feel like, look, Kerry is a beautiful place, but you know, okay, we we, we have we have a darkness to us. I feel well, that I was fear the right him. answer. This, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was the right answer. Um, yeah. So the Connor and his brigade kind of. Caused a bit of trouble, like they set up a fort near to the to the temple in Salt Lake City at Fort Douglas, um, sorry, the temple construction site, and that made the Mormons uncomfortable. Um, they really wanted to keep Wonder an eye. On them. He sent his his board soldiers off looking for mineral deposits because he thought if there was more mining to be done, more non-Mormons would come, which he would prefer. He didn't like Mormons very much. Okay. Um. So in 1863, there was an event called the Bear River Massacre, which... Uh, Sounds pleasant. Yeah. Mm. Basically, it, it affected the Shoshone people, the northern Shoshone people who were living in the Cache Valley, which crosses over into Idaho. Okay. They had obviously been hard hit by the impact of colonization. Tensions were high. There was a lot of hunger in the, in the Shoshone community. The group in question in this massacre were led by Chief Bear Hunter. 
and there have been a series of atrocities between pioneers and soldiers and the Indians over over a couple of years. You know, there have been wagon wagon trains attacked, there have been US soldiers shooting at villages, there have been all kinds of back and forth. It came to a head with an attack on some miners along the Montana Trail, some of whom escaped and went to Salt Lake City, where Chief Justice Kinney issued warrants for Bear Hunter and a few other of the chiefs to be arrested. And he encouraged the marshals to seek military assistance to, quote, affect the arrest of the guilty Indians, okay. end quote. Colonel Patrick Connor uh, decided this was an opportunity to, end quote, solve the Shoshone problem. Uh-oh. And so he took his militia the 140 miles north to to um, to the Cache Valley. Basically, his men were hungry for a fight. They were kind of fed up being in Utah and not being in the Civil War, you know, yeah. being on service away from home, but just like, you know, watching mail wagons and uh, yeah. going mining. You know, Crap wasn't really what they signed up for. Yeah. So they wanted to, quote, serve their country and shoot and traitors instead of eating rations and freezing to death around a sagebrush fire. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think any time that you stray into the territory of, of you know, uh, we're going to solve, insert group of people here, problem, like, you're straying onto the dark side. Yeah. If the people themselves uh, are the problem, there's only yes. one solution that tends to kind of come from yeah. that. Yeah, um, you're not wrong. The Deseret News, which was the one that was a Mormon newspaper, callously was in, said this in favour of the expedition of Soldiers North. Right. They said, with ordinary good luck, the volunteers will wipe them out. We wish this community rid of all such parties, and if Colonel Connor be successful in reaching that bastard class of humans who play with the lives of the peaceable and law-abiding citizens in this way, we shall be pleased to acknowledge our obligations. Huzzah! So okay. um, it's not 100% clear if they're just talking about the particular group that has been doing the attacking or all Shoshone people. Let your imagination fill in uh, the blanks, I think, is the, the policy in here. Yeah. Uh, so Connor was quite sneaky. He um, basically he split his party in two to kind of conceal the numbers and confuse the the people who weren't necessarily expecting an attack in the deep winter. By the time they did attack, the the Shoshone people camped in in the Bear River. It was probably minus twenty degrees Celsius. Twenty ninth of January, and uh, uncharacteristically cold even for that part of the world and basically 200 troops kind of suddenly attacked the uh, the group who really they were they kind of knew there were troops around but they were expecting a discussion right an attempt to come to terms and so they had some kind of meager defensive uh construction put in place but um nothing that could hold up to this amount of well-armed uniformed troops yeah. um I think they, the the amount of firearms that were between them were, were was paltry. Uh, yes, yeah, so the the initial attack actually led to some losses by the by the Americans, the U.S. troops, who pulled back, and then they flanked the camp and just kept shooting until the Shoshone people ran out of ammo. ammo and uh, there's differing reports. Some reports say almost all all the men were killed, at least, and many of the women and children. Um, some say a lot of people survived by playing dead and later escaped but the long and the short of it is that after the 
Bear River Massacre, only about 1,250 Shoshone people were left alive in total. Um, wow. And their influence in the Cache Valley diminished significantly. And how many were, were and, killed, Joe? Roughly? Uh, anywhere between two and 600. Right. Oh my god. Great. Uh, depending okay. who you ask. So up to like a third of, of their population, basically. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And under Chief Sagwich, uh, many of the remaining Shoshone became Mormons and they founded um, the the farm town of Washaki, Utah, which is named after the the chief we met in Wyoming. I remember Washaki. All right. Mm. Yeah. So um Connor was treated as a hero for this activity Great. and promoted. And he'd later serve right. in the Powder River Expedition, which again we talked about in Utah, which we was did. a series of similar kinds of uh, things. Incidents, yeah. One other uh, series of events between this time between so that was a kind of a, a showdown between the, the US military and Native Americans. Yeah. There was also uh, what was called Utah's Black Hawk War between Mormon settlers and the Ute people. Okay. In the south of the state. And this happened uh, from 1865. Again, tensions were very high. Um, there have been harsh winters. There have been measles and smallpox ep- ep- epidemics among the Native populations. Um, obviously, that was the fault of colonization. Um, and also the specific tensions at, at this point were that cattle were being stolen during the winter by Native American bands and eaten. Because they're starving and, and they need Because they're starving, yep. exactly. And because a lot of their land had been fenced in and so on. Um, so on the same day that uh, Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee were meeting to negotiate the end of the Civil War, uh, representatives from various Ute tribes and the Mormons were meeting at Sampy Valley to try and negotiate a, a settlement of some sort. Um, but as they were attempting to have a negotiation, U.S. Indian officer John Lowry, who was possibly drunk, uh, basically had a go at an outspoken young chief called Jay Carapine, pulled him off his horse, and this outraged many of the younger warriors who rode off from this discussion. And one of those was a guy called Antonga Blackhawk, who would become a leader of of this uh, series of skirmishes, about 150 different battles and skirmishes over the course of a couple of years. Oh, so a proper war then, not, not like... Well... A proper raiding series, maybe. Um, During this war, there was a treaty signed uh, at the Spanish Fork between many Paiutes and and Utes, um, forcing them into signing over the ancestral lands in return for the Uintah Reservation, which is is not the best land in in Utah. They were given uh, nearly a million dollars, paid out over, I think, a couple of decades. I'm not sure if it was actually paid, but that was what they agreed to. And Brigham Young was quite direct with the chiefs. He, he, some of them were unwilling to sell. And he told them, if you do not sell your lands to the government, they will take it, whether you're willing to sell it or not. And also, the land does not belong to you, nor to me, nor to the government. It belongs to the Lord. Which I'm sure was reassuring. Yeah, that's a welcoming message. But yes, yeah, so the, the, the Black Hawk was, was kind of a civil war. You know, it was uh, there were many atrocities on each side. 
people, you know, Mormons would attack Indians who weren't involved because they didn't really know the difference between different right. tribes. Um, there would be raids on on farmsteads where people would get killed while they were trying to steal cattle. But generally, the goal was to steal cattle. Um, but at least seventy-five white settlers were killed. Thousands of ca- cattle were stolen, and uh, uh, dozens of of Native Americans were were killed as well, as militias unable to catch Black Hawk lashed out. Yeah, um, and it didn't really wrap up completely till eighteen seventy two when federal troops came in and kind of quashed the last few um, raiding bands. Okay, that's that's it's okay. all pretty dark, Joe. So, <laughs> that's pretty, yeah, we're 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 nearly, nearly getting to the twentieth century now, so. The first transcontinental railroad was built in 1869, completed at Promontory Summit north of the Salt Lake of Salt Lake City. Oh, so that like so, as in on a national level, like the transcontinental. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. So linking again, much like the telegraph had done, yeah. but taking longer. Uh, this led to an influx of new settlers and businesses, including non-Mormons. Ba ba ba. And this train line, actually, hmm. uh, I have to tell you an anecdote. The first time I ever heard the word Mormon, or came across the idea of Mormons, was in reading a book that we should be familiar with. Uh, I don't know. Go on. The Bible? No. Peg Sayers? Where are you going with this? Um, I first read about Mormons in Around the World in 80 Days. Oh, sure. Right. Okay. So in chapter 27, they are getting a train across the United States, about to stop in Salt Lake City. So there's there's a guy on the train called Elder William Hitch who who basically gives a a lecture about Mormonism and he he's not portrayed in the most uh, glowing light he's very he kind of starts out annoyed and then gets more annoyed as he goes on and everyone just you know people just kind of leave the cabin in twos and threes as he kind of goes and they killed Joe Smith and they shot him and he's a martyr I tell you and Brigham Young he'll be a martyr too and they're gonna get him yeah. <laughs> Okay, and as I as I recall, passport passport two in the in the book is kind of sitting there, Politely. sort of like shifty eyed, kind of looking left and right, and sort of not really knowing what to do or what he's got himself into. Yeah, and at the end, the guy kind of goes, "Do you want to join?" And he's like, uh, "No." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I, me- yeah. I remember as a kid, kind of going, "What's polygamy?" Um, yeah, which was well, but that's that's set in eighteen seventy one, so on that very new train line. And then the last thing that brings us to the end of the 20th century is the issue of polygamy and women's suffrage, which you wouldn't think would be related issues, but they are. Um, Wouldn't you think they'd be related issues? Are the women voting for polygamy? Probably, probably not. Which which direction does this polygamy go? One way. Oh, that's interesting. So like in 1870, women got the vote in the Utah Territory. And largely this was in an attempt to kind of undermine the narrative of the downtrodden Mormon woman. Right. It's like, look, we let them vote, unlike you guys. Um, but many outside Utah were convinced that women's suffrage yeah, will put an end to polygamy. Others were concerned that, you know, if the man of the house is in charge and the women must be obedient votes. to him and he has five yeah. wives, he's got six votes. Yeah. So there were two two sides. Uh, in 1871, Charlotte Godby, who was kind of a leading Mormon suffragist, uh, invited Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Staunton to okay. observe women's suffrage in action. That was interesting. They made some speeches in the tabernacle, but uh, the speeches were of the kind that they weren't encouraged to make speeches in Mormon temples again. Okay. Uh, right. So they were kind of like, you know, maybe don't focus on having as many children as possible. <laughs> Which is Controversial. 
yeah, with all the teachings. Um, the Edmunds Tucker Act, which passed in 1887, put the church under great pressure. It was a, a an act of Congress and basically disestablished the Mormon church, uh, seized a lot of its property, locked up any of its leaders who were polygamists, um, required kind of a religious test on people to take federal offices, which I think is unconstitutional, but the Supreme Court didn't think that. Um, <laughs> basically, pr- prove you're not a polygamist before you can uh, uh, be a governor Court. or a judge or a whatever. And um, part of that rescinded women's right to vote, which I don't fully follow. Kind of as punishment uh, okay. for being polygamists, they weren't allowed to vote. Um, yeah, right. so... The United States did not like Mormons. Yeah. Particularly. It, it'd be evident. almost like, it feels almost like the, the veil, you know, how people talk about bur- burqas and stuff for Muslims. That's like they're, you know, we can't let Muslims in mm. because because burqas. You're like, okay, but can we ask the women? No, they don't let the women talk. Okay. So we won't ask them. Yeah. Yeah. It's got that sort of, how dare you mistreat look your what women? They, we don't look what they make them. their women wear. Uh, okay, but you you would be making them not wear that. Yes, we will make them not wear that. That's our that's a proposal. And have uh, you asked the women how they kind of feel? The same thing. No. Yeah. So it kind of that's the closest analogy I can think of in kind of current day is like picking one aspect of a religion to obsess about when you know very little about it. Given that given that America was a very you know sort of Christian nation at the time, mm. you know heavily Christian nation at yeah. the time, that kind of harkens back to what I was talking about with Buchanan. Uh, where he assumed that maybe the slavery is dividing people, but we can all unite against the evils of polygamy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Here's something we can all agree so, on. Yeah. So, yeah, in, in 1890, the um, there was a very convenient thing happened where uh, Latter-day Saints President William Woodruff had a vision, had a revelation uh, from God. As, as one does. About how um, maybe they shouldn't be doing polygamy. Yeah. God has taken uh, the little... political temperature of the nation, uh, my friends, and got views it. There, uh, but, uh... Not right for now. Uh, he wasn't wrong before well, we said we should the, do it. The, but the, he's, the, he's right when he the says vision he, he had was of what would happen if they persisted in pursuing their policy of performing marriages that were illegal. Oh, okay. All right. And he kind of took from that, let's just not. Not, not saying it's not valid, just that we're not going to do it. Right. If you get me. Sort of like how... Catholic priests can be married, they just aren't, you know, because it's a an, a new admin rule was brought in in the 1500s. But, like, it's not right. saying that anyone before that wasn't a priest. Yeah. So they're going, you know, yeah, people have plural marriages, and they could again, but as of right now, we're not going to do them while it's illegal. And this is where these fundamentalist sects come from. They have split off over this issue. And so anyone you see in like Sister Wives on Netflix or whatever, that th- those are those would be from fundamentalist Latter Day Saints groups rather than mainstream classic Mormon classic. Yeah, I also spoke to Greg about the impact uh, that this decision has had on modern day Utah. So let's insert that segment of our discussion here. So obviously the we call them splinter groups, uh, but yeah. arguably the, those the, those polygamous splinter groups have just as much claim to Joseph Smith's tradition as. The mainstream church just okay. as we could even say with the 1844 split when brigham young took most mormons and 
you know, a, a minority state in the Midwest. Um, so it's become a, uh, a little bit of a, a cultural fight at times where, you know, if, if uh, you say to, to some Mormons, oh, you guys do polygamy, right? Or you once did polygamy. You, you might see a knee jerk reaction if you know what you're looking for, where they're yeah. not only going to say, oh, yeah, we don't we don't do that anymore. But you, mm -hmm. but you might get it. No, we don't do that. And, and those who do are not Mormon. Right. right? Like this this insistence that they they are heretics. They are not a part they're of us. Um, very far separate from right. from the modern church. Yeah. And look, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I get it. I mean, I have been asked myself by people with PhDs for crying out loud, you know, people who you, right. you expect to be very, uh, you know, open minded and, and uh, enlightened and whatnot. Uh, I've been sure. I've been asked with with <laughs> I could kind of feel the the disdain almost. Uh, you know, how many mothers do you have? Oh, no, no, oh, no. Cool. It's right. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, just the one, just the one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's where it comes from. And to me, it's I see an interesting parallel where there are those within the larger Christian world, especially uh, you know here in Protestant, well, no longer Protestant America. It's actually become a minority. But uh, there are some uh, uh, a number of Protestant faiths in the United States that very much do not do not like Mormons being called Christians. And right. so I, I just find an interesting parallel that as as Mormons fight um, against some of the larger factions of Christianity for recognition as, as a Christian denomination. Uh, yeah. We in turn uh, do the same thing to these smaller sects that still practice polygamy mm. as we want to distance right. ourselves from them. And there are still, I did, I did not notice before reading the book uh, by John Krakauer, which I, I, I think I neglected to mention the name of earlier is called under the banner of heaven. But there, there are like whole towns in the U.S. and Canada right now that operate on a fundamentalist Mormon, uh, like polygamous basis, um, yeah, which I, I was not aware of. The, the, these kind of sects are dwarfed in in comparison to the main Mormon Church, but uh, large sects do still exist. Wow! All right. Um, then, eighteen ninety three, forty years after the first stone was laid, the Salt Lake City Temple was dedicated. So that's. Again, all of the street names in Salt Lake City tell you how far away you are from the temple, which is kind oh, of cool. right. like a grid reference almost. And in 1896, um, Utah was accepted as the 45th state in the USA with anti-polygamy and women's suffrage written into the Constitution as per requested. Uh, Excellent. Yeah. 20th century. Yeah, I'm going to do a little bit of flag talk here, sure. as we always do. Um the flag of the state was officially adopted in 1896, as you mentioned, Joe, when, when Utah became the 45th state. Um, it's pretty basic. Uh, it's just the state seal, which had existed prior to this, uh, set against a navy blue background. And the seal itself is a bald eagle, uh, which is a national bird of the U.S. No. Um, the seagull lily, yeah. which is the state flower of Utah, uh, representing peace. The state motto, industry, which I know you have a, a bone to pick with, Joe. I do. I and do. the beehive, representing progress and hard work. Oh, and, and, and yeah. And two American The flags. U.S. flag is also yeah. featured showing Utah's support and commitment to the United States. And the name itself of the state, Utah, belo appears below the beehive, which is a... Uh, I hate when <laughs> when flags have, um, name have the name it. of the place on them. Yeah. Um, but we'll have text on that them. is what it is. Um, the date 1847 represents the year that the Mormons entered Salt Lake, and 1896 represents the year that Utah was admitted as the 45th state. Uh, overall, 
Uh, I'm not really a fan of this flag. Oh God, uh, it's hideous. It three flags out of ten, in my estimation. What do you it's What do you guys think? A, it's just not a flag. It stinks. It's. Yeah. Uh, it, it kind of to me it suggests. To, okay, to me it suggests that they were nervous i guess of how they would be perceived and we're trying to be like we're americans see we got two american flags and a flipping eagle that's how american we are do you get it like and and some some yeah. weird arcane stuff about a, yep. a bee um, no it's, you know. it's it's definitely that's a flag designed by committee and the committee doesn't know anything about vexillology the eagle is also they did, ugly. They do not. I think Squat, we've ugly eagle. We've talked about it before. I think, but the Roman Mars of ninety nine percent invisible, which we mentioned mm. earlier, has a really great TED talk on flags, and this flag basically breaks all of his rules for good flags. Yeah. Um, like I, I, so, I'm going to have yeah. to on the website make an eleven by sixteen pixel version of that, and it's just going to be blue with a slight with blur a dot in, in the, the middle, middle, which would be better. Yes, I would, I would prefer this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Which will not, you, know, you won't look at it and go, oh, Utah, of course. No, it's yes. Yeah. No, my my, my yep. issue with the slogan is the issue I had with Wyoming's slogan, which was equal rights. <laughs> is It's just not a slogan. No. It's, a, it's a thing. It's a word. It's a thing. Like, <laughs> it's, a slogan. It's, it's a noun. You know, yeah. there but for the grace of God go I, or, you know... Uh, like, it could be it could be something from Exodus. Like, you know, kind of a make a straight path into the desert that's a that's a motto but mm. industry is just like what is your what is the primary part of your economy industry <laughs> <laughs> like it it might as well be like not polygamy there's but not polygamy on the flag <laughs> uh, jeez uh, okay yeah, no it's a bad flag it's a stinker you're giving yep. it three flags out of ten luke is that what you said that's probably generous I would say, but yeah, it is. I'd give it one flag. I'm gonna, I'm gonna see. Yeah, I'm gonna see a two flag and right. one flag out of ten flag because this is a pretty, pretty bad flag. All right, all right, okay. Um, okay. So, um, uh, there, there's quite a lot of literature out there. Not really much of which I had the time to read about kind of Utah and how it developed as a culture in the 20th century. Uh, some, some aspects I think highlight the kind of change from the the, the frontier mentality. Uh, to more kind of a social conservatism um, whereby, you know, we were kind of talking about how women getting suffrage and and so on and um, the kind of their role within the suffragette suffragette movement. But uh, I I think some of what I was was seeing, I was looking at kind of talks on YouTube by some of the authors and so on, they, they were highlighting was that, you know, for all of that in the 20th century, Utah became a more socially conservative place, uh, which it maybe might speak to kind of the the uh, greater confidence, I guess, the Mormon Church had in mm. its role in Utah, and it, it actually kind of started to adopt a similar role as to you know just Christianity in other kind of states, and it, it yeah. kind of followed that mold essentially. Um, but with regard specifics, uh, nineteen hundred turn of the century is the year that uh, Reed Smoot. Uh, was allowed to run for office. Uh, uh, he, he got, um, I think he got consent from the, the Quorum of Twelve, actually. Um, yeah. He was elected to the Senate in 1903, um, which was awkward because the Senate assumed that he was one of those those polygamists we've been talking about because, you know, they, that they were still mm. hung up on this issue. So their view was that he shouldn't be allowed to serve because he's, he's probably a polygamist, we assume. 
So he wasn't. They, yeah, but they were. They wanted to be really, really sure, uh, and they were so freaked out about the possibility. They they held an insanely long hearing to see if they could maybe get rid of him. It lasted from 1904 to 1907. Oh wow! It was three that years must of hearing. Holy God! Yeah. So okay. They, they eventually did a vote. Uh, but they didn't get the two thirds they would have needed to kick him out. So, uh, Reed, Reed Smoot stays. Um, I mean, I will say, how many uh, questions do you have to ask for hearings to last for three years? Oh, like, God are knows. you a polygamist? No. Okay, we're going to ask you again. Are you a polygamist? No, I think there was no. the element of do you support polygamy? Right. I think that was maybe Ra- rather than his yeah. personal ma- marital circumstances. Yeah. Um, but again, how many different ways are there to phrase that question? It's like, that it's you a fair need three point. years it's, to ask it. Say, say this really hot woman wanted to marry you as well as your wife. You know, <laughs> would, you, would you? Were they bringing For in instance, models, this like you know, here. supermodels into the into the hearing? <laughs> yeah, I have a daughter. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. So oh, I will say, okay. while it might have been, you know. Um, a silly or a stupid thing if he'd been kicked out for being a polygamist while not being a polygamist. It actually might have been a good thing on balance uh, because old Smoot would mm-hmm. hang around the, the, the US Senate uh, like a flippin' fart uh, and he would get his name on a bill, which is the reason I had actually heard of this guy and kind of put him into to my section. So after 1929, the Great Depression and so on, uh, Herbert Hoover, who was president at the time, uh, sorry, he was yeah. running for president at the time, uh, he started saying a lot of stuff about how he was going to pass tariffs to stop all those awful foreigners ruining the American economy, if that sounds plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, these tariffs were called the Smoot-Hawley tariffs and oh. and jacked up tariffs on a lot of key products across the American economy. Uh, and, and this is a direct quote from Britannica. Some observers have argued that by deepening the Great Depression, the tariff may have contributed to the rise of political extremism, enabling leaders such as Adolf Hitler to improve their political strength and gain power. So, Dear thanks, God. Reed Smoot. Wow. Dummy. All right. Um, I, think, I think it's a bit of a stretch to to entirely blame Reed Smoot for Hitler. But, uh, uh, <laughs> his name is on the bill. It was a good, stupid good, bill. Good work for trying. I'm blaming him for that. Uh, but yeah, so the, the impact was a, maybe a net negative of him being there. Um, okay. 1906, cutting back a little bit, um, a huge copper mine opens in Utah in Bingham Canyon. It's known today as the Kennecott Mine, and it's reportedly oh, the, yeah. the largest single excavation or hole in the ground um, that has as, that we have ever gone and dug as as humans. Uh, it reportedly produced 19 million tons of copper since it was opened. Um, if you look at the I mean, industry, again, I'd recommend uh, Google imaging it. It's 1.2 kilometers deep, four kilometers wide and covers 7.7 square kilometers. It is truly enormous. That's a lot of strip mining. Um, mm. Yeah. And it's literally just a hole in the ground that they're, co- they're pulling copper out of. Right. There's uh, we talked about uh, kind of geography. I, mean, I like so copper. But... In, in 1909, um, there was a, something I, I think it was discovered by I assume people had seen it before. I mean, you know, non-white people of uh, something called the Rainbow Bridge, which is this enormous kind of stone loop in the desert. It's um, 234 feet or 71 meters in, in length. Uh, it's uh, 13 meters thick and 10 meters wide. And it's arguably the world's longest natural bridge. There are other kind of stone loops in the world, but their their kind of angle would make it not really viable as a bridge. Uh, But yeah, it's 88 meters high, just for 
for context. It's. I hope crazy. they built a highway across. Like, <laughs> that'd be the most American thing to do. Um, so I also read that in 1911 there was a reservoir completed, which I, I've it's, it's called Strawberry Reservoir. But I've only included it because uh, in 19 19- is that the one where they stole a part of the. Indian reservation uh, too. I, I I would say potentially, yeah. but um, in uh, 1990 they tried to kill all the aquatic life in the lake in an attempt to get rid of what were called trash fish. Um, okay. so like just kind of fish that aren't interesting economically. Is that a ecological term? Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, specifically the Utah chub. Um, and then uh, shortly after replanting the fish, the Utah chub began to appear again. And then they introduced some <laughs> new new fish to eat the chub called the Bonneville cutthroat trout, Bear Lake strain. Uh, so it's a specific kind of Bear Lake uh, cutthroat trout to eat all of these chub. So yeah, they, they've, they've been trying to kill off the, sh- the fish and replace them with other fish and that didn't work. And then they're introducing new fish to eat the other fish. It just seems like a, a, a bit of a mess, but uh, I, I was interested that they tried to kill off all aquatic life in a lake that they had made. In, in 1913, the Seagull Monument in Temple Square in Salt Lake City was uh, founded. Uh, on top of the monument is a bronze statue of two insect-devouring seagulls. Uh, and the, the, the statue was cast by sculptor uh, Mahonry M. Young, who designed the monument. He studied in France and is the grandson of Brigham Young. Um, oh. And the mo- monument was dedicated by uh, LDS church president Joseph F. Smith, who I believe was a... a and a, a relative, any relative to... Uh... Exactly. Joseph Smith Jr. Um, World War One. Almost 21,000 Utahns went to war. 2,000 of them foreigners. I think there's quite a lot of foreigners living in Utah at this point. Uh, I definitely saw mention of, of Greeks specifically. Um, 219 died in battle and another 400 died due to disease and accidents. Uh, in 1919, Utah, as well as the rest of the world, was hit with the Spanish flu. Uh, 20% of Utah got the Spanish flu and I think 4% died as a result. Fairly consistent, right? Yeah. Uh, Zion National Park is created uh, and just there's national parks popping up all over the place in this period just because it is, again, insanely beautiful, the whole area. Um, World War II, 71,000 Utahns fought in this and 5% of them died and about 6% had long-term psychiatric complications. Um, I just wanted to read about pharmacist's mate, second class George E. Whalen, who is, uh, or Wallen, who is a uh, recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. He grew up in Ogden, Utah, served in the Army and Navy, uh, also volunteered for combat duty with the Marines and participated in the Battle of Iwo Jima in 1945. Over 12 hmm. days of battle, Wallen was injured several times and refused personal care while attending to other fallen soldiers. Um, he received the Medal of Honor in 1945 and died in 2009. Um, wow. So, yeah, I, I was looking through kind of Medal of Honor recipients and so on. I, I generally do for U.S. states. And there weren't many kind of Mormons from Utah. There, was, there, there have been a few people from Utah, but just not really from World War II. Um, the other big thing to mention about World War II is that as per Wyoming, there was also a Japanese internment camp in Utah. Oh. Camp Topaz. Right. Um, it opened on September 11th, 1942, um, and many of the barracks and schools and so on had not been completed by the time people were coming in. So obviously that was very problematic. Um, uh, most of the people mm. going there were from San Francisco. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, the population there was, uh, the number of people processed through the camp were 11,000 with a population of about kind of eight, eight and a half. 
And as I say, internees were being hired to finish off the building of their own barracks and put up barbed wire fences and so on. In 1943, James Wakase, age 63, was shot by a guard when he was standing near the southwest section of the fence. Uh, Obviously, this was a big problem. And this is just kind of providing context for when they started asking the Japanese maybe whether they would consider fighting on the American side in the war. Uh, they they issued a, a very long questionnaire to all the internees, including kind of two questions, which I'll summarize as essentially, will you fight? And the other was, will you renounce Japan? That second was very problematic because for the older generation, uh, the first generation of Japanese immigrants, they had actually been uh, prohibited from becoming American citizens. So in answering yes to will you renounce Japan, it would have potentially left them stateless. stateless. Exactly. So people were really angry about this because like wow. you're you're putting us in a position that we can't comply with and then you're going to, you've already imprisoned us. So what are you going to do if, if we answer no? Uh, in fact, if people answered no to both questions uh, on the loyalty questionnaire, they were sent to a segregated camp, Tule Lake, and uh, threatened with deportation. So uh, it was pretty oh, unpleasant. Uh, there were 105 volunteers who left Topaz for active duty. Uh, and I think they were integrated into the uh, unit, which uh, the, the the members of that other uh, camp from Wyoming were, were included in, um, but uh, which was a very celebrated. And, you know, that 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 unit did and like amazing stuff. Um, so also in 1943, there was a huge steel plant uh, set up in uh, Utah. Uh, and this was kind of contributed to the war effort. But the uh, reason I mention it is because in 1984, it was the set for the film Footloose, which was shot entirely in Utah. And this was oh. the Geneva Steel Mill, uh, which is now closed. Uh, but that's where the famous Dan Sukinson in Footloose is held. Um, cool. Skipping forward a little bit, 1958, a group of Dude. brothers began their meteoric rise to fame. Alan, Wayne, Merrill, and Jay would eventually be joined by Donnie, uh, who would then grow to overshadow his Osmonds. brothers with his sister Marie the Osmonds uh, of course they were Mormon yeah, they are they? super Mormon yes they did look yeah. very wholesome <laughs> very very wholesome never put that together um, so they were bona fide <laughs> celebrities from Utah which is really rare all the kind of famous people from Utah lists I found were all people like who had been there for a week at some point uh, in their childhood <laughs> like or were born and then immediately <laughs> left there's actually very few celebrities from 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 uh, Utah for some reason um, songs of theirs you may know include Crazy Horses, Puppy Love, and that's probably it, to be honest. Um, I think, wasn't Donny Osmond in, like, Joseph and His Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, the movie or something? Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, Which again seems on brand. The, the, so, speaking of brand, the format of a bunch of older brothers, then joined by their youngest brother, who is the actual star and overshadows the rest, probably sounds familiar, uh, because the, they're, and, you know, for good reason... Uh, one of their biggest singles, One Bad Apple, was apparently originally written for the Jacksons, uh, but Barry Gordy of uh, of Motown actually gave it to them instead. Uh, they instead chose ABC, which I would say, having heard both songs, was the correct choice. <laughs> that song is a banger. One Bad Apple is kind of like a crap ABC. Um, in 1978, uh, you mentioned that uh, the, the Sundance Film Festival was founded in, in Utah. It was actually at the Sundance mm-hmm. uh, Resort which is what, why it's named yeah. in that. But I think it's, it's a ski resort. Right? Yeah, exactly. And it, it, I think it's been moved moved since. Uh, it was founded, I always thought it was founded directly by Robert Redford, but I think it was actually his his film company in kind of uh, partnership with the Utah Film Commission. 
Um, so I think he was, he was, I think he was the, one of the first, uh, head judges or whatever, but just, just give you a bit of context as to, uh, the, the films that went to Sundance the first year, they included Deliverance, A Streetcar Named Desire, Midnight Cowboy, Mean Streets, uh, and some movie called The Sweet Smell of Success, which I, I actually don't know, but yeah, it was a wow, pretty, a pretty serious roster of films they got in their first year. Yeah. Hmm. Um, 1974, uh, the University of Utah gets a new student called oh, no. Ted Bundy. Uh, yeah. Ted Bundy was never mm. tried or convicted for any of the murders he did in Utah, although uh, by all accounts, people are pretty sure he, he did some murders, famous serial killer Ted Bundy. Um, if you scroll through, uh, sorry, this is from a, a, an article from a local uh, news site, so uh, uh, any any mistakes are, are theirs. Uh, uh, if you scroll through Utah... Well, throw them under the bus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll never meet them. Uh, if you scroll through Utah court records, there's just one case under his name, which is a 1976 conviction for a second degree aggravated kidnapping uh, of a woman called Carol Deranch. This is the woman who escaped. Yes, wasn't she it? escaped. Uh, and he wasn't arrested as a result of this um, until 1975, the year after, for evading police. When they arrested him, they found handcuffs, a ski mask and pantyhose with eyes cut out in the car he was driving, which is mm. really nightmarish. Um, when he was eventually captured and was being um, was going to be executed, slight spoiler alert there, he uh, he was interviewed by police from Salt Lake County because they had yeah. a lot of kind of unexplained uh, murders that fit his modus operandi and they were trying to kind of get some clarity because again, this is, you know, 10 years after the events. Um, so Dennis Couch of Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office spent, uh, I think, 90 minutes speaking face to face with uh, with Ted Bundy before he was killed, trying to get information about, about where any of these bodies might have been. Um, following that meeting, he told Washington State investigators that he had killed eight different girls or women in Utah. Um, Utah quickly ruled out three of the murders he confessed to uh, as actually not being ones he, he had committed. Um but there's also quite a lot of disappearances that they question yeah. whether he might have been involved with. But he denied responsibility on them. Um, there's a, a really famous book um, called The Stranger Beside Me, which is kind of the definitive account of, of Ted Bundy, um, you know, essentially highlighting how he seemed like a normal guy, but he was actually a monster and was doing crazy stuff. It was uh, Carol Durant yeah. is the woman who escaped. And I think he is suspected of having killed someone else that day. Good Lord. Like he... Um, he he tried to handcuff her, but accidentally handcuffed both the same wrists, and so she could get out of the car and escape. Um, so was was the situation. But later that day, uh, uh, a young woman went missing from from a dance, I think, at a high right. school, and and it's almost certain that that was him. So the, the the point of him kind of giving false information and confessing to certain things he didn't do, and keeping quiet on things he probably did do. Um, the author of this book, The Stranger Beside Me, flagged that uh, this this is probably a scheme to send police out slopping through the mud in vain, something Ted would enjoy. So it was really just kind mm. of, you know, frustrate the whole process. Um, yeah. Reports from the day of his death indicated Utah police believed he may have been responsible for 11 deaths in Utah uh, in total, including some as early as 1971 and as late as 1976. But they could only actually pin five killings on him. Um, so that. Um, so fast forward a little bit, um, 1995, Utah wins the bid for the 2002 Winter Olympics uh, in Salt Lake City. Um, 
And in That's nicer. Th- the year after, uh, Utah celebrates its 100th uh, birthday of statehood. That's oh. exciting. Um, in 1998, journalists obtained a draft copy of a letter written in 1996 on Salt Lake Organizing Committee stationery by one of its top officials. This is uh, in the pitch for the Olympics. Uh, the letter was addressed to a young woman whose father was an influential member of the uh, IOC, the International Olympic Committee, mm. uh, which in 1995 chose Salt Lake City. Uh, she'd been receiving money for tuition, rent, and expenses from the Salt Lake Olympic officials since August 1993. Uh, and I quote from the letter, Under the current budget situation, it will be difficult to continue the scholarship program with you, wrote David Johnson, second command of the Salt Lake Organizing Committee, uh, to Sonia Esomba, uh, who was a student at the American University in Washington, D.C. at the time. The enclosed check for... $10,114.99 will have to be our last payment for tuition. Um, officials revealed that Asumba had received $108,000 from the Salt Lake Olympic Committee for her tuition, and they had overall lavished $1 million worth of gifts on 24 of the 114 IOC members to ensure the Utah City won the 2002 uh, Olympics. Uh, Salt Lake wow. uh, Olympic officials gave free credit cards when these visitors came to town, spent about 20 grand to take three IOC couples to the 1995 Super Bowl, loaned one member 30 grand to help a friend and paid for plastic surgery to remove the bags under the eyes of an IOC member. Uh, and that that is just a little sampler. This is all very specific corruption. Yep. Yeah, yeah. They were giving it's the money and paying for stuff for money them. Stuff. Uh, so uh, this is a quote. I thought it was just really, really interesting. It's one of the, one of the, the last things I'm going to mention. Um just on the context of this corruption in the context of Utah. So James E. Shelley, author, of, sorry, editor of the Salt Lake Tribune since 1991, had this to say, there's too much trust and not enough questioning. What questioning we did and what challenging we did of the organizing committee was considered way out of line. But for me to say we don't get caught up in the culture is a little bit naive. So it kind of goes to that 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 seniority kind of culture that that existed from the early days is still kind of there today. And that's one of the things that makes it difficult to be a whistleblower and to flag up corruption and problems when you see it. So, yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. Um, in 99, uh, last thing I'll mention is that there was a tornado that ripped through downtown Salt Lake City doing a hundred million dollars worth of damage. Um, and that's uh, that's the 20th century. So. Like- we we could say that politically, Utah tends to vote Republican. Yep, uh, almost all the time. Yeah, I actually spoke to Professor Greg Jackson, our guest today, about uh, the Utah brand of conservatism and how it's actually quite distinct uh, today from uh, what you might consider uh, the typical American conservative viewpoint. So uh, let's insert that here. Uh, a few of the things that are Mormon roots. Uh, have left us with that I think is absolutely lost on the national uh, level and international level, because of course, why Mm -hmm. on earth is anyone going to think about, you know, this, this little state with 3 million people in a country of over 300 million, especially when Mm -hmm. we are the quote unquote weird Mormons in the eyes of many. Um, Right. So our, our Mormon heritage has colored us in some, some very positive ways that, uh, you know, the, the polygamy thing always, always hangs out there. Mm-hmm. But uh, touching back on that idea of uh, being religious refugees, um, that that hangs over us. And so as I watch, you know, I, I have no interest in really you know getting into nitty gritty of American politics. I shoo that very intentionally when it comes to podcasts. Okay, but uh, 
this is a very heavily red state. You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're very Republican and it, I am painting with broad brushes, right? Uh, Salt Lake City is very Democratic, uh, but Republicanism or conservatism, perhaps the, is the better word in Utah, is mm. different than it is in other states. Uh, okay. It is, it's got more of a libertarian lean and as all this discussion has been going on, whatever your listeners views may be, I'm, you know, I'm not looking to, to comment sure. on it, uh, but with uh, President Trump calling for a border wall and things of that nature, that hasn't really ever resonated with with Utahns. Uh, hmm. The uh, talk of you know immigration concerns, not not that there aren't people in the state who you know have those views. You can find somebody anywhere yeah. who has whatever view. Oh yeah, for um, sure. But Going back to even uh, the primary of, of 2016, when President yes, you know President Trump was already starting to lock up states, and so you start to get mm-hmm. the the end March uh, voting, and Utah utterly rejected him. Only 15 yes. percent of Utah Republicans were on board, and so that mm-hmm. tension is still, it, you know, Trump has won over the state more so now, and as the years have gone on, and it's become clear he he won, right? He's the president, sure, but sure. He it still lags. He still doesn't uh, have the same poll here that he does in, in other red states. And I mean, just just uh, two months ago, I think it was the, the governor sent a letter to the Trump administration asking him, please send us more refugees. We have the space. We welcome. Wow. Them. And I think that, you know, that that sort of perspective, it's really lost. I mean, we, memes fly on social media in Utah. Did, uh, you know, depicting Mormon pioneers when, when these sorts of discussions come up with, hmm. you know, the, the meme reading, you know, the original American religious refugee. We were very yeah. conscious of what it is to be um, um, discriminated against for hmm. religious beliefs. And uh, we don't even have to talk about the, the current uh, deals with President Trump. Looking back at some of our uh, legislators as they've been in Washington, it's uh, it always catches a lot of the, the GOP establishment off guard when they try to do something when it comes to uh, religion at, at times. Uh, or minority, yeah, and, kind and, of minority groups. And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And the usually super dependable uh, congressional rep or senator who's who's Mormon, uh, it says, yeah, sorry, we're not on board with that. That's not happening. And the current senator is Mitt Romney, who's not even from here, but is a Mormon. True. He was uh, Massachusetts originally, wasn't yeah. he? He was... Um... But I think he he walked it easily when he wanted to run. Yeah, they're like, you know, a, a Mormon with national recognition. Yes, please. The favorite thing I know about Mitt Romney, uh, apart from that he accidentally left his dog on the roof of his car when he was moving house, is that his 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 favorite his favorite foods. I think his number one and two uh, favorite foods are uh, hamburger. Uh, sorry, no, it was, it was meatloaf, meatloaf, and hot dog. Boring. <laughs> wow. <laughs> anyway. How very American. Have you ever met a Mormon missionary abroad? Um, I think on my front door, I think I have. Although they might oh. have, yeah, I, for, I forget. But I think I have. I, I actually, Luke, when when I was with you in Macau many years ago, I, I got chatting to a very well-dressed, very polite young man who it turned out wanted to tell me the good news about our Lord and Saviour. Um, mm, I think I remember that. Yeah, and he was like, yeah, you know, very nice, very earnest, very young. Right. And um, very committed. Fair enough. Um, 
I, I have some little bits of trivia, sure. not 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 as much as we would normally have. Um, famous people I mentioned, very hard to find famous people from here. Mm. Roseanne Barr was born yes. here, uh, and also the Gore brothers, as in the inventors of Gore-Tex. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. uh, they're the second biggest producer of tart cherries and also of mink in the U.S. Uh, f- that's from beeftolive.com, which I've quoted in the past. Um, there's a town. Uh, J- John John Browning, the inventor of the Browning automatic rifle, was born in Ogden. All oh, right, fair enough. So um, they do like guns. There, there's a town called Levan in uh, Utah, which is naval mm-hmm. spelt backwards, and it's so named because it's in the middle of Utah. Oh, that's um, cute. The TV series Touched by an Angel was set here. Almost, oh. almost no other, no other TV series as, as far as I could tell. Um, I I read this. Utah was a big target for tech companies but I actually looked this up and while they talk about this a lot of like oh this is a city on the grow Salt Lake City uh, tech 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 uh, but if you actually look at the list of major tech hubs in the US based on tech jobs per thousand it doesn't have a city in the top 20 so uh, it ranks behind Columbus Ohio so I think that's not really quite a true thing um, sports Utah's professional sports teams include the Utah Jazz of the NBA and, and the other sports is kind of lower lower leagues, lower tiers. But I, I always wondered Utah why Utah Jazz. Ju- Where did that come from? Yeah, I used to love playing as them in, in a NBA jam on the Super Nintendo. So the reason they're called the Utah Jazz <laughs> is because they used to be the New Orleans Jazz. That makes more uh, sense. And they, they stole ah, them. Uh, or, you know, of course. Uh, acquired is them. jazz allowed in Utah? Uh, uh, it's not the jazziest of places. It does seem strangely <laughs> ironic. Um, they have uh, the Salt Lake Buzz of AAA uh, baseball, the Utah Grizzlies hockey club, of uh, the IHL and the Utah Stars with two Zs. Uh, mm. Actually, wait. So wait, the Jazz, the Buzz. Oh, it's all B related. There's a theme. Yeah. The Stars has two Zs. Grizzlies has two ah, Zs. Buzz has two Zs, and Jazz has two Zs. Right. I think it's all B related. Okay, fair enough. That makes sense. That's, I've, I've that's just made my own trivia there. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's kind of it. Uh, population growth is pretty pretty high and continues to grow. It's one yes. of the fastest growing states in, in the union. But because uh, and Mormons tend to get married yeah, young, they it. tend to have children, which and, helps with the economy uh, as well. The, 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 lots of yeah, children. the doctrine is to have as many kids as you can support, as far as I understand. So okay. yeah, they 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 tend to have quite large families. Uh, I I believe that Utah has the second uh, highest birth rate in uh, the U.S after i think south dakota i want to oh, say oh wow i but, I, yeah. I read the the highest um, in some things but they might have been out of date as well i think it's it's always there or thereabouts i think it might be um, it might um, have been the highest at one point yeah yeah uh, and a third of the population is under is under uh, 18 so that's oh, wow. probably the youngest population in the us mm. right all right so to round out this episode First, I want to say a big thank you to professor greg jackson for uh, talking to me on this episode uh, again you can find our conversation on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast. Uh, and you can also avail of extra bonus content and perks uh, if you if you back us on Patreon. Uh, here's Greg telling you where you can find more of, of his work online. So uh, you can find history that doesn't suck on all the usual places when it comes to podcasts from iTunes, Spotify, and uh, and of course online. Feel free to go to our website, historythatdoesntsuck.com. Again, I'm Greg Jackson. I'm a professor at Utah Valley University and uh, teach courses related to history, religion, you know, the sorts of things you'd expect from this interview.
As for us, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram under 80 Days Podcast. Uh, you can also email us at 80daysPodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, you can leave a review in your favorite podcast store. And don't forget to check out the show notes, which you should be able to find in your favorite podcast app that has uh, links to all the music and uh, clips that we're using this episode, as well as uh, some further reading, should you be interested. Uh, that's it for this episode. Joe, where can people find more about you on the internet? If they go to timetoburn.com, they'll find links to me and my Twitter account and all that. And Mark? Uh, MarkBoyle86 on Twitter. Yeah, You can find me at the Luke J. Kelly on Twitter or at my website, LukeJKelly.com. Thank you as ever for very much for listening and to play us out, here are those famous sons of Utah, the Osmonds. <laughs>